yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. The LSU Bats just could not get it done down the stretch against Wake Forest bullpen. They had a couple opportunities, but it was not to be. And now it's not over yet, but the Tigers will face an uphill climb trying to get back to where they want to be in Omaha. Good morning. Dawson Iserlo filling in for Raymond Parch III, our guy RP3, is traveling back from Omaha. Of course, he spent the weekend covering the Tigers in their first few games, got to see. He was at the game last night against Wake Forest. Um, He got to see what was, look, an incredible baseball game. Um, So here on RP3 and Company this morning, I'm going to recap that game for you. I took a lot of notes, went through a couple of key plays that I thought kind of changed that game throughout it. So I'll kind of go through all of that. We're going to also hear from Coach Jay Johnson and maybe a little bit of Trey Morgan who was involved in a pretty big play at the plate there. So we'll get those thoughts. That'll be in the next segment. We're also going to talk Houston Astros. Wow, what what a bad time it is for the Astros right now. Of course, right when I went to Houston is when it all started going downhill. Uh, although, actually, in, in fairness, it started going downhill a little bit before that. <laughs> We're going to talk about the Astros' loss to the Mets. Uh, Max Scherzer figured out that he was Max Scherzer again last night, and that didn't go well for the Strohs. Um, then we'll also talk to Brett Chancy about those Astros. He's the host of Locked On Astros. And um, we're going to go back a little ways, talk about that weekend series against the Reds um, with him. Also talk about the, the opener against the Mets, what they can do tonight against uh, a guy who used to pitch for the Astros a little bit. Justin Verlander's on the mound. Um, he was honored last night before the game, but now he will be uh, in the other dugout looking to keep the Astros losing streak going, and they'll be looking to try to do something about that. So we'll ask him about all that. I also want to ask Brad a little bit about um, kind of the Astros' mindset moving forward here as we head towards the trade deadline. Um, I don't think you should make any rash decisions, um, you know, at this point. But I want to get his perspective on, you know, what their plans are going to be heading into June and heading into, uh, or excuse me, heading into July and heading into the all-star break time where the trade deadline is going to be coming up. I want to hear what he thinks about the Astros' kind of position and where they where they can go from here. So we'll talk about that. I also want to hit on the other College World Series games. Um, Tennessee survives. They beat Stanford 6-4. to four. Uh, They had an outstanding relief appearance there from one of their better guys, and we'll dive into that a little bit. Um, if I have time here, I'm going to circle back to the U.S. Open for a few minutes and just give a couple of different thoughts about LACC. Um, and what we saw over the weekend with Wyndham Clark winning that. Uh, we'll see if we're able to get to that one. But then in the final hour, we're going to talk to RP3. We're going to get the update, how it felt in Omaha. What was the atmosphere like? We saw the game on TV, but you know, what was it like being in the building? Um, what was the environment like? Two competitive teams going at it in what, again, was uh, a very good baseball game. We'll get his opinion on that. Uh, the Jello shot record did fall. Tigers fans got that done yesterday, so we'll we'll talk to him about that as well. I think he uh, paid a visit to Rocco's the other day, so we'll, we'll see how he felt about all that. 
Um, and then we're going to talk with Ali Cassell at the 832 mark. And I really want to get his perspective on this trade rumor situation because, look, when it came out last week, I thought it was kind of a lot about nothing. But it's now beginning to make me wonder. The reports are starting to get more and more serious. It sounds like maybe the Pelicans are going to be dealing at the uh, before the NBA draft here, and I'm not sure what to make of it. So I wanted to get Ollie's perspective on that and see what he thinks and see if he's buying any of the rumors now or if he still feels like uh, it's more likely than not that the Pelicans stay put. So we'll, we will talk to him there. Um, all that and more here on a Tuesday episode of RP3 and Company. Um, and I'm excited about it. So also the game hotline will be open, 337-706-0111. If you want to get in, um, we will have plenty of time for that throughout the day. So let's start with that LSU baseball team and, and the Wake Forest matchup. Of course, this was the winner's bracket game. Remember, the winner here goes to 2-0 and um, and is put in a very enviable position because the winner of this game last night was going to have to be beat twice by whoever then comes back out of the loser's bracket. Um, so LSU and Wake Forest, they were widely regarded as the best two teams in the country for a long stretch of the season. LSU had that little uh, kind of blip on their radar in SEC play where they lost a couple of series, and that dropped them. ended up dropping them to the number 5 overall national seed. But then once they got back rolling and headed into postseason play, I think there was still a belief by some, myself included, that these were the two best teams overall. Um, and again, seeding in baseball doesn't always represent the best teams, and the best teams don't always win the games. We've been over that plenty of times. But this game was important for a ton of different reasons. You know, the bigger reason that we talked about it for being you know so huge for LSU was that they didn't have the pitching depth to maybe come out of the loser's bracket, or... We didn't feel confident in that pitching depth. I don't want to say they don't have it because, look, we're going to find out over the next three or four days if they have the pitching depth to come out of the loser's bracket. They're going to have to. They're going to have to beat Tennessee tonight, and they're going to have to beat Wake Forest twice um, towards the end of the week. So we will find out, but we felt like they weren't as well equipped to do something like that as, let's say, Wake Forest was. So that was one of the big storylines heading in. Um, We knew Wake was throwing a guy in Josh Hartle who had really, really good stuff, but... Ty Floyd had been really, really good over the last few starts. Now, he hadn't necessarily given you length, but he had been really solid when he was in there. He gave you a chance to win. He hadn't been defeated all season as a starter, Um, and that did continue. But early on, it it was Josh Hartle who came out in the first inning. He had some sharp breaking balls early on. He struck out Dylan Cruz, and I thought, okay, uh, here we go. You know, this is a guy who, who looks as advertised early. Look, bottom of the first, though, Ty Floyd was matching the start that Hartle had. 97 miles an hour, velocity throughout the inning, just pounding fastballs as Floyd likes to do. And Wake looked like they really didn't have a chance to catch up early on. He ends up striking out the nation's home run leader to end the frame. Um, And, you know, we heard going into the broadcast, Jay Johnson mentioned one of the keys was going to be getting Wake and getting Josh Hartle into the zone, not chasing, not helping him out, not expanding. In the second inning, I thought LSU did a good job of that. They started to kind of force him to you know, make some tough pitches. They laid off of a few pitches out of the zone. Um, they worked their way on base. And look, the umpiring, we're going to get to it. Um, his zone was all over the place. Early on, I wrote down that he wasn't given that breaking ball in the inside corner. Hartle was trying to throw to that lefties. It would be a front door breaker. Um, to the right-handers, it would be that backdoor breaking ball. And especially to the lefties in LSU's lineup, the guys like, of course, Josh Pearson. 
he wasn't giving that, and I wrote down Pearson specifically because I saw one in his first at-bat, or, or maybe it was his second, but regardless, Hartle wasn't getting that call, so he had to make an adjustment. Um, Wake's pitching coach, Corey Mascara, comes to the mound at one point here. First pitch after that, Hartle gets a swing and a miss, and the next pitch after the swing and miss is a 4-6-3 double play to end the inning. So Muscara coming out there, I don't know what he said there, but he was able to, to calm Hartle down, and he got out of the inning. The next note I have is that the strike zone was just inconsistent early on, and uh, unfortunately, if you revisit this point, it didn't get much better. I just thought it was it was confusing. Now I will say the one area he was consistent with is he gave the low strike all night. I think he was giving a you know an inch or so below the knees that helped Hartle a lot with that breaking ball at the bottom of the zone. Floyd Floyd used it a little bit with his fastball. Um, but not nearly as much as Hartle did. So Hartle was able to take advantage of the fact that that low strike was being called. Now that I don't have a problem with because it was at least consistent. He was giving that pitch right below the knees throughout the night. Uh, The top of the zone and kind of the inside corner, which I mentioned early, he wasn't giving that inside corner to lefties. Uh, He started giving it later, then kind of went back to not giving it. I, You know, I just wasn't a fan with the inconsistent strike zone. I know it's difficult, but, eh, you know, in college baseball's biggest stage, winner's bracket game in Omaha, you'd just like to see a home plate umpire who was a little bit more consistent. So I had to make a note about that, and, and you know, we, we'll revisit it, um, of course, in our conversation with RP3, because he was actually texting me. Of course, you know, when you're, at the, when you're at the ballpark, you have a different perspective. You're not able to see the TV broadcast, hear what the commentators are saying about it. And he was asking me a couple times. He was like, is that, has that been consistent? And I was like, look, it hasn't been consistent. Uh, I don't know for sure. I said that one could have been called a strike, the one he was specifically texting me about, which I think was in the sixth or seventh inning. But I said, I'll tell you this, he he's given that earlier today, um, but he hasn't given it as well. There's been times where it's gone both ways. So I wasn't a huge fan of that. In the early to middle innings here, Josh Hartle had some consistency issues with the command, um, and that's not very characteristic. He was a guy who came in, did not have a huge walk total. He was right around 20 walks for the entire season with over 130 strikeouts, so not a guy who usually struggles with his command, and I thought he was actually being a little bit too cute with it at times. Uh, I thought he was trying to nibble too much. Now, You understand why he's doing that. He's facing one of the best lineups in the country, and you can tell that he had some adjustments that he made coming in, and they had a plan to attack some of LSU's best hitters. They weren't going to let guys beat them at certain parts in the zone. And to his credit, Hartle effectively executed that part of the game plan, but I did think he tried to nibble a bit too much. So the first big mistake he made was Tommy White's RBI single, and it was a spinner that he left over the middle of the zone. Tommy White hit the ball over 100 miles an hour off the bat, uh, and he hits the ball so hard. I'll have a note later in here because White had another hit. He was good in this game, and and it's just amazing to me how hard Tommy White hits the ball. But that's Hartle's big first mistake, and LSU takes a one nothing lead. Right after that, there's a ball hit by Trey Morgan. It's kind of a, you know, a tough one to read off the bat because it's a hard line drive but it is completely overrun in left field. Um, And there was a huge conversation about the sunglasses. He had them up on the hat. Everybody, of course, kind of makes fun of the fact that he didn't have them on and he appears to lose the ball in the sun. But the reason he doesn't have them on is the same thing that Josh Pearson mentioned about why he wasn't wearing sunglasses the other night in their game against Tennessee, especially with the way that Charles Schwab Field is with the shadows. You know, when the ball gets caught in the shadows, if you have sunglasses on, sometimes it's even harder to pick it up then. So you you can't have the sunglasses on. You just kind of have to shade your eyes with your glove. And once the ball gets into the sun, you can try and avoid it. It, It's tough as an outfielder. 
and we saw that come to fruition, and then we saw pure panic because he overruns the ball. It goes over his head. Trey Morgan ends up with a triple. I wrote that down. Baseball scoring is funny. Uh, Trey Morgan gets a triple out of that. Outfielder doesn't get charged with an error despite it being um, an obvious, you know, error. I mean, it's it's as clean an error as you're going to find, in my opinion, but because we score baseball games a certain way, that ends up being a triple for uh, Trey Morgan. He's not going to complain about it. That'll help his stats out. But uh, anyway, that ends up being an RBI that scores Tommy White, who was on first base. Um, so the LSU Tigers go up 2 nothing, And at that point, you started to think, man, and Wake had had a couple other slightly shaky defensive moments early on in that game. So they had a ball uh, on White's single, actually. That's the reason he got the second base. Center fielder kind of came up early on. It kicked away from him. He, White gets an extra base. That's what allows him to score easily, although eventually he'd have scored anyway um, on what ended up being a triple for Trey Morgan. So I, I actually wrote down here, going back to Hartle's command issues, the wind was blowing in significantly, um, and that was discussed. Nobody got a ball out of here, and honestly, uh, there was only one ball that I wrote down that I thought was close to getting out. Um, so I thought, personally, I'd have, I've, I thought he should have attacked a little bit more, and maybe Ty Floyd could stay the same, although I think Floyd did for the first, you know, the only time he lost command was in that last inning where he walked three straight, but he didn't have any issues. I thought he attacked and did a better job of that than Josh Hartle did, right? So... You know, the bottom of the strike zone, again, I wrote it down here that it got huge. I thought at this point he started giving a couple of strikes, and it helped Hartle out. Um, But anyway, my overall point there was with the wind blowing in, I thought he should have allowed a couple, you know, and went after LSU hitters a little bit more, and I thought LSU did a good job forcing him to make better pitches throughout his outing. Uh, I wrote down again here, Tommy White hits the ball so hard, it's unbelievable. Um, I, I had a thought during this game, is it really fair that we're letting Tommy White use an aluminum bat? I'm not completely sure that's fair to everyone involved uh, because the guy hits the ball as hard as you see baseballs hit in the college baseball game, and he hit another one here, so he ends up having two hits in this game. Um, Now, LSU wasn't able to capitalize, and Hartle once again works out of the jam. Um, Then it was the third time through the lineup, and that's, that's when Tommy White gets this second hit, and then Trey Morgan hit a ball very hard as well that got caught. So I wrote down, I said, come back to this, let's see what happens the third time, the rest of the third time through the order. The next inning, Cade Beloso hit a missile that got caught. Um, I thought Hartle was kind of tiring, and it was pretty obvious LSU was seeing some better swings on him. Um, and then that's the one ball that I wrote down I thought would have been gone at a regular park. Bear's ball that he hit, I think, in the seventh inning, um, either the sixth or the seventh, I thought that ball certainly gone at Alex Box. It's certainly gone in Wake Forest. And maybe even on a normal day in Omaha, that ball gets out uh, because it was hit very hard and deep to right center field. But... It ends up dying down. Wake Forest makes the play, and they end up getting out of the inning. So uh, bottom of the six, Tommy Hawk tries to call time. I wrote this down specifically. He doesn't get time granted. He has to quickly put his hand back on the bat, and he fouls off a 96-mile-an-hour pitch. He ends up working a walk. I thought that was a big moment. I don't know how many people noticed that, but he was trying to call time. It wasn't granted, so he quickly puts the hand back on the bat. I think he had a 2-2 count at the time, and he fouls one off, ends up working the walk, and that's where the cliff happened for Ty Floyd that he just fell off the cliff as far as his command because he walks the next two hitters. I did write down, I wonder if you even let him go through the third time in the order next time. Um, but that's just been an issue for Ty Floyd, as great as he's been. And look, I want to I want to make sure I make it clear. Ty Floyd through five innings in this game was outstanding. This is a very good Wake Forest lineup. We talked about that throughout, the, throughout last week and into this week. Um, he was so good. And, I mean, to be honest, Wake never really threatened before this. 
So it's really tough to see the outing end the way it did for Ty because I thought he deserved better. But all things considered, Thatcher Hurt comes out of the bullpen and it wasn't pretty. But he only gives up the two runs. He had the hit batter in there. You know, there was a lot of different things that went on. But overall, he gets out of it. They tie the game at two. But with the bases loaded, nobody out. I think you'll take that on both sides. If you're Wake, you take that you tied it up. But if you're LSU, Thatcher Hurt came into a very tough spot and got a big out when he needed it. Um, So bottom seven. Still tied at two. Thatcher heard, and I wrote specifically, he didn't give in to Brock Wilkin. He got him to chase. He snuck one by him early in that at-bat, and then he just started nibbling, which I thought was the perfect time. Brock Wilkin is one of the best hitters in the country, and he was able to force him to go out of the zone. Game stays tied. Um, Then there's the play in the top half of the eighth inning where Bennett Lee makes a tag. Uh, Trey Morgan's at third base. Nobody out. Runners on the corners. It's a slow ground ball to third. The play is made moving to his left. And he makes a throw to Bennett Lee, who puts down an unbelievable tag. I don't know how he scooped it. Um, Bennett Lee, the two-lane transfer, gets it down. Over on review, I mean, it's about as close a play as you're ever going to see in college baseball. Um, It wasn't enough to overturn it. I thought they made the right call in that regard. There's an angle that looks like maybe Trey Morgan gets the hand in, but you just can't tell if the glove is on the leg from the same angle. So I just thought there wasn't really... Now, I thought maybe there would have been more angles than that, given that it's the College World Series, but there wasn't really... A solid angle that showed you, A, if the hand was in before the glove hit the leg, or B, if the glove hit the wrist before it hit the leg anyway. So all in all, it's an unbelievable play and a tough break for LSU because it looked like with that double clutch at third base that they were going to get the run to take the lead. They end up not getting it. Um, you know, they come. Menachi comes out of the bullpen, Manassi, and, and gets the next couple outs, and they keep it tied. Then bottom of the eighth, Bennett Lee, the two-lane transfer, gets the RBI single to give Wake the lead, and Manassi's able to close it down in the top half of the ninth. So what a baseball game. That's my notes from last night uh, going through it there. It was incredibly played on both sides, and it's one of those, it's just tough that somebody had to lose it. But at the same time, that's baseball, and that's the College World Series. And I think Kevin Foote and I covered this, RP3 and I touched on it a little bit. Every game in Omaha has been outstanding. I mean, the only game that was somewhat non-competitive was LSU-Tennessee, which was a 6-3 game, which still on paper is not all that... Uh, much of a blowout. It just felt like LSU was in control the whole time. Another instant classic here between Wake and LSU. And unfortunately for the Tigers, it sends them to the loser's bracket. And it means that they're going to have an uphill climb, having to beat Tennessee today, having to beat Wake Forest twice. That game against Tennessee today, as a reminder, is going to be at 6 o'clock. You can listen to it right here on the game with pregame starting at 530. We got to take a timeout. When we return, we're going to hear from the LSU Tigers, hear from Jay Johnson, hear from Trey Morgan about last night's tough loss. You're listening RP3 and Company. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Go subscribe to the game's YouTube channel at the game Louisiana. That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Yeah, great college baseball game. Um, hats off to the pitching on both sides. Um, they got a clutch hit uh, there at the end, and we did not um, get ready to go tomorrow. That's Jay Johnson, LSU baseball skipper, and he was uh, pretty quick about it, right? And I think he kind of covered a lot. That's only a 12-second clip, but it tells you 
most of what you need to know. It was a great baseball game. Both teams fought hard. One team won, one team didn't, and you got to move on from it. Um, you know, and it's it's one of the things about baseball that's funny because it's a game that needs time to even itself out, right? And and, and Foot and I joke about this. Foot uh, jokes about it maybe a little more than I do, but um, it's a game that's designed to kind of balance itself over time, but in a situation when you're in a College World Series, you don't have time for that, right? It's two losses and you're gone. Um, from now, from here on out, it's going to be win or go home for LSU uh, unless they're able to make it to the championship series. And then, of course, you buy yourself a best of three where you no longer have to win every game. But um, the Tigers battled. And, and that's one thing, you know, in, in my notes at the end of them, I went through uh, kind of everything I wrote down throughout the game tonight, some of my thoughts on the big plays. But at the end, I just kind of wrote down that this was a great baseball game. And I, both sides, you know, it wasn't perfectly played. There was a couple defensive plays. Obviously, a left fielder ran up and completely overran a ball, and LSU benefited from it. Um, there were a couple of things. Certainly, Ty Floyd walking the bases loaded wasn't perfectly executed on the Tigers' side. Um, so, not perfectly played, but very, very well played at a high level. I think you could see why these teams were so good. And I think the pitching performance also, just the fact that these two teams are as good as they were offensively, both pitching staffs uh, did a lot. And Jay Johnson was asked what he saw from Wake Forest pitching staff in this game, and he gave his thoughts. Well, I mean, with Hartle, it's four pitches for strikes. Roland has a great breaking ball. Obviously, he came in and, and struck the first two guys out. He faced Massey's got a big arm. Um, and, I mean, made a great pitch to Cade. You know, you have to send the runner there, so we stay out of the double play. And um, he I mean, it's a heck of a play by Wilkin. I mean, if it skips or if, if he throws it and bounces off Trey, we're ahead 3-2, and we probably have runners on second and third. Um, so, again, you know, in championship environments, as we said in our game on Saturday, your dudes have to be dudes, and, and he was a dude on that tonight. Um, but good bullpen. Those guys are, are really tough, and there's a reason they've only lost 10 games all year with the starting pitching they have and the bullpen they have. You heard Jay Johnson allude to that play there when Wilkins going to his left, and it's it's one of those it's it's such an example of baseball being as funny as it is. It's a slow roller. I think Trey probably makes the right read going there, and we're gonna hear from him in a minute about that. But I think personally, it's such a tough play. Now Wilkin, if he doesn't double clutch it, this throw might be even easier. But there's such a chance. I think you see so often a catcher not be able to handle that ball because think of the perspective from Bennett Lee. He's looking at a tough angle where Wilkins crossing into foul territory, then throwing back across, throwing it across the runner in Trey Morgan, who Lee is already keeping an eye on, and he backpicks it and makes the tag. And Trey Morgan was asked, what did he see on that play and kind of what, what was his thought process there? Yeah, um, we were in uh, red, which means I go on contact. As soon as the ball was hit, I uh, took off. I knew he was going to have like an awkward throw, so I kind of, Tried to get a little bit uh, over to get in the way, but um, he made a great play. And so you heard Trey mention there, it was a situation first and third. You have different kind of green light, red light situations. Some teams call it different things, but he's essentially saying you're going on contact there. Usually the only exception in, in a spot like that where you're going on contact is a hard hit ball right at the third baseman. Um, if you're able to get back to the bag in that situation, you would freeze on that. But other than that, right, I mean, any slow roller, um, the other one, hard hit to third or hard hit back to the pitcher are the ones you're freezing on. Other than that, you're going. So I think he makes a good read. And again, it takes an incredible pick and, and tag from Bennett Lee here. And Jay Johnson also gave his thoughts 
more specifically on that play? No, it's a it's a ground ball we are going because if he doesn't go, then we're going to hit into a double play, and it makes it really difficult. Now you have a man on third standing there with um, two outs. Now you need a base hit. So it's, it's very simple baseball, actually. And again, I mean, I don't know that Cade Veloso's hit a ground ball to third base the entire season. And so you have to tip your hat to Massey for executing the 2-0 pitch that he did and got him to swing through, and then the 2-1 pitch. And so there you go. He's even getting more specific about the call there. It's not even a situation where you're freezing on that because they don't want the double play. So in their perspective, even if it's a hard hit ball to third and they throw, they end up getting Trey Morgan in a rundown, then A, maybe you try and get the runner to third if you can be in the rundown long enough and feel safe about it. Or B, yeah, that runner's out, but you still have first and second with one out as opposed to the double play ball that really kind of you know, hurts your chances of scoring big in the inning. So it is, uh, it is a weird scenario, and baseball kind of presents those types of things, um, and that's what took place there in the, in the eighth inning. Um, but overall, you now have to bounce back, and the interesting thing is you've had off days here in Omaha so far, but now you go right back into elimination play today because of which side of the bracket you're on, and LSU will have to face Tennessee, and Jay Johnson was asked what they're going to have to do to have a better night offensively than what they did against Wake Forest. Yeah, I mean, the, the teams that are here, you know, uh, particularly the two that we've played, uh, are, they're the two premier pitching staffs in college baseball. And, uh, you know, Josh Hartle's really good, really good. And, um, you know, preparing for this game, you know, we knew he would present a challenge. And I, I thought our guys battled him pretty good. I thought they did. Yeah, I mean, he's really hard to square up. Um, he executed pitches, you know, down in the zone, both sides of the plate, you know, as, as Trey mentioned. And we put some pressure on him. Um, it wasn't a great night to hit either with the wind blowing in and uh, a good pitcher going. And we benefited from that early in the game, too, with Ty. Um, but I have zero concerns about these guys preparing well, coming in and competing and executing our plan. We're going to have to do it against Drew Beam, who's one of the best pitchers in the country. And um, so it'll be a really good challenge, and uh, we're going to have to be ready for it. Leah up here. So you heard him mention it. Drew Beam was going to be on the mound for Tennessee tonight. That is a tough draw, but I kind of agree with with Coach Johnson there, and of course he would know it better than me, but I thought their plan at the plate was good. I thought they did make Hartle battle. Um, Now look, Hartle's stuff is top tier, and that's part of the reason that they didn't quite break through. They had a couple of chances um, when they worked a couple runners on base via the walk, they had a, you know, a few hard-hit balls. As we mentioned, Tommy White, I thought Joe Bear really tagged that one. And again, on a different night where the wind's not blowing in, maybe we're talking about a 4-3 LSU win on a two-run homer from Joe Bear. So all those come into play, but now you have to bounce back and face a good Tennessee team. Um, look, your advantage over Tennessee is I think LSU's a much better offensive team than they are. Um, the disadvantage here is that Tennessee's throwing Drew Beam, who's a guy they're very confident in. And LSU's throwing, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe it's Javen Coleman tonight, um, and, and, and I don't know. But I still think the Tigers, and, and look, here's a situation tonight where the offense is going to have to have a vintage performance. Um, but more times than not this season, they've done that when they've needed to. So we'll see. We'll see what happens tonight. Uh, once again, first pitch for that game will be at 6 o'clock with pregame at 530, and you can listen to it right here on the game. we got to take a timeout when we come back. Oh, the Houston Astros. What a rough night, and um, it's it's starting to get a little bit worrisome. We'll talk about that next right here on RP3 and Company. 
This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. It was not a great weekend for the Houston Astros when they took on the Cincinnati Reds. I was in attendance for Friday night's game in which they were uh, stifled offensively and lost that one 2-1 to one, despite a great effort from J.P. France on the mound. Saturday didn't get much better in a 10-3 loss. And then Sunday they had a lead early. It looked like everything was going to be fine. I was back in attendance at least for the first half of that game before I had to head back. Um, and a 5-2 to lead was wasted with a 9-7 extra innings loss. And at the time, you sit there and you go, okay, so you got swept, and now the Mets are coming to town. The Mets haven't been good, so maybe that's an opportunity. But, oh, you're facing Max Scherzer and Justin Ver- Verlander in the first two games. Um, and, you know, our guy Kevin Foote, who you can hear on footnotes, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. every morning here on the game. We're going to hear from him, of course, uh, once that show starts at 9 o'clock, and I'm sure he's going to have a lot to say, but... He does uh, agree with me on certain things, and one of them is that that last night was a bad circumstance game for the Astros because Max Scherzer, when you have the track record that he has, um, and you don't think there's any kind of real, you know, serious regression issues as far as like you know age being uh, a huge factor or anything, you know. It, it tells you that he's going to figure it out one time or another, right? And every start, I think it becomes more and more likely that he's going to find his stuff again. And Max Scherzer looked like vintage Max Scherzer last night. And it came at the expense of the Houston Astros. Now, maybe facing what the Astros lineup looks like right now is a recipe for any pitcher to get their stuff figured out. I wouldn't argue that point. But nonetheless, Max Scherzer came out and uh, looked like the Cy Young winner that he is. He ends up, uh, after all things are said and done, going eight innings, giving up just four hits, one run, one walk, eight strikeouts. He actually was warming up to go back. Well, not warming up, but he was looking like he was going to go back out for the ninth. Um, and I think there was actually a change made in the mindset of the Mets because of the fact that they scored five runs in the top half of the ninth inning. So I think how long that inning took actually kind of allowed the Mets to reset and say, you know what, there's no sense throwing him back out there for the ninth. Um, but regardless, just just another really bad day at the office for the Astros, and they make a couple errors. Again, defensively, they've looked sloppy in the past week and a half, two weeks. Uh, Hunter Brown ends up giving you a couple good innings, and then the third inning, it all falls apart, and he gives up five runs. Now, credit to Hunter Brown. He kind of dug in and gave you five and two-thirds. He ends up overall giving up seven hits and six runs, but the fact that he gave you five and two-thirds and saved the bullpen a little bit I think is important. Um, but the Astros lose another game, and that's now five in a row. It's um, starting to drift away from them in the AL West a bit. The Rangers won once again last night. They were the only other AL West team in action, and they beat the White Sox 5-2. to two. Despite what looked like maybe a late rally for the White Sox in the bottom half of the ninth, they couldn't get it done. So you're now six and a half back. Now the good news is the Rangers aren't on fire either. They're only 5-5 five and five in their last 10, but... It's overall not turning into a very good stretch of baseball. And now, tonight, 
You have another interesting circumstance game. You're facing Justin Verlander, who, of course, came over in a trade and helped the Astros win a World Series title. Um, look, it's it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to to face Verlander tonight. I think it's a guy who, look, similar to Scherzer, hasn't looked like vintage Justin Verlander all year. He's only got a 4-4 ERA coming in. And to the Astros' you know, advantage here, they have Framber going, who's been your ace and has been your most consistent, solid pitcher all season long. Now, you haven't given Framber much run support, and unfortunately, the way your offense looks right now, I'm not sure he can expect a whole lot tonight either. Um, but the Astros are starting to really slip up, and it, it's a matter I'm, I'm getting a little bit concerned about. I don't panic at all in baseball seasons. I think you all heard me repeatedly say it was fine in May and into early June. Whenever they would struggle, they went on a couple of nice runs, and look, they're still well above 500 by five games, and they have plenty of time here. But the schedule coming up is not going to lend itself to just fixing things here. They're going to face the Mets two more times, who, again, haven't been great, but we know how much talent's on that roster. They'll head to Los Angeles to face the Dodgers, who haven't been as good as the Dodgers normally are, but of course we know what that roster is capable of. Then they go to St. Louis for three, and then Texas for three. So... Uh, the the league leading division or division leading rather Texas Rangers are also in the mix in the next week or so. So they got to figure things out. Um, and the last thing on last night's game, it was a night for anybody who wasn't playing well for the opposing team to get right against the Astros, because uh, Francisco Lindor's had a fairly miserable start to the year. He went two for five and drove in five runs, also homering. So um, he figures things out. His average just two sixteen for the year now. Also, Daniel Vogelbach, how about a guy who was barely hitting over 200 entering? He goes two for five and hits a homer and drives in three runs. Anybody who needed to figure things out was able to do so against the Astros last night. So um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We're going to talk to Brett Chancey, get another perspective on that coming up at the beginning of the 7 o'clock hour. Um, we'll get his perspective not only on what the Astros have looked like in the past couple of weeks and the struggles, but what do they do come trade deadline time? Are they as aggressive as we originally thought they were going to be? Or do they take this as an opportunity to reset, maybe slow things down, um, see if you can continue to develop some of your younger talent, but maybe not go all in despite the desire by the fans, of course, to win a back-to-back -back World Series title? I'm going to ask Brett about that and kind of see you know, what his overall thoughts are on the situation right now. Um, I did lastly want to circle back because I was in Houston over the weekend. I got to see the Astros in person for the first time this year. Um, some thoughts on the ballpark experience. I love Minute Maid Park. It's one of my favorite parks. I've only been to a couple here in the big leagues, but uh, I just think they put on a great show. And the crowd was excellent both times I went on Friday night and on Sunday afternoon. Uh, Father's Day weekend, so on Sunday, certainly maybe that had something to do with it. But I thought it was an excellent, lively crowd. Um, if not sold out, then certainly close to it. And now the uh, the team's performance wasn't able to to be backed by that crowd, but overall I thought it was impressive. And another thing that struck me, as we're about to hit a break here, the graphic design, the overlays, the transitions, everything that goes on on the video board. Sometimes when you don't go to a professional sporting event for a while, go to a lot of college games, and not to say that the graphics and everything there aren't well done as well, they are. But uh, the experience of being in a major league park, and specifically with the, with the Astros, the way they put it on, just impressive on every level. And like I thought, the uh, some of the so you know, of course, they're the World Series champs. So a lot of their uh, graphic 
designs, templates, and everything like that all have to do with winning the winning the World Series, being the champs, ready to reign, of course, is one of their mantras this year. Um, I thought it was fantastic, and uh, sometimes you just forget about it when you don't see it for a while. So being in there, just the environment that they're able to create, it's, it's just a great game day experience. So I did want to mention that because I had forgotten to kind of, or really didn't get a chance to with yesterday's show being so packed. So we have to take a time out when we come back. We'll introduce the poll question of the day. It has to do with the College World Series and the LSU Tigers. That's next, right here on RP3 and Company. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Alexa and the game make a great team. Do yourself a favor and enable the Alexa skill, the game Southwest Louisiana, so you can keep it locked in to the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, wherever you go. Welcome back into a Tuesday edition of RP3 and Company. D'Lo, in for RP3, who is making the voyage back from Omaha, Nebraska, after covering the Tigers in their first couple games in the College World Series. And that's where our poll question of the day is focused on. Tigers fell 3-2 to to Wake Forest last night in a thrilling baseball game, but now that means they can't afford to lose again. So with one loss, how far do you think the LSU baseball team can go in Omaha, is it that they're going to lose today to Tennessee? Do you think it's over? Uh, do you think that Tennessee pitching depth is going to come back to bite LSU? Do you think they get past Tennessee, but then they lose one of, again, where they would have to beat Wake Forest twice? Do you think it's one of those? Uh, do you think they make it to the College World Series Championship Series, but then lose to whoever comes out of the other side of the bracket? Florida is in the best position right now. Or do you still have the Tigers winning it all? They're going to be able to run the table on their side of the bracket, and then win that best of three series. Uh, right now, 34% of you are saying they're going to lose today against Tennessee. Wow, the negative comments from the LSU fans this morning, or the negative uh, voting patterns at least. 40% of you say lose one of the two to Wake Forest. Um, I think that is you know, a, f- a pretty realistically fair thing to expect. It's going to be a tall task to beat Wake's pitching staff twice. But the thing I would, again, kind of this is early to mention it, but you potentially be able to bring Paul Skeens back for the second game of that situation, I think, uh, maybe. So if you can find a way to get it to that, if you beat Tennessee tonight and you can beat him the first time with maybe Johnny Holstaff, then maybe you have a chance to bring Paul Skeens back. And then I think uh, you'd like LSU's chances, of course, if you had the big right-hander on the mound. 14% of you say they're going to make it to the championship series, um, but not be able to get past whoever comes out of the other side of the bracket, whether it be Florida, uh, TCU, or Oral Roberts. And 12% of you still have the Tigers winning it all. Ralph says if that home plate umpire calls another of their games, that's when it ends. He was terrible. I'm not going to argue there. I I wasn't a fan of his strike zone and kind of um, the fact that it kept migrating throughout the game. I I do think Wake was dealt some pretty bad calls as well, but I didn't keep a tally, um, and maybe I should sometimes, on how many calls I thought were bad for each side because I think as a fan, your tendency is only to pay attention to, you know, the bad calls against you. Um, but I thought he was bad for both sides. But I would agree there was probably a handful more, and I think part of that's just because Hartle used the bottom of the zone more effectively. Um, and Ty Floyd, again, with that fastball. Now, that's kind of the difference, right? Hartle used the breaking ball so often he wanted to be at the bottom of the zone. Ty Floyd was blowing fastballs by guys up in the zone as well, kind of getting them to chase 
above the eye level. But either way, no, I, I was not a fan, Ralph, uh, of, of the umpiring last night. I would agree with you on that. Hart says this is, this is the make-or-break part of the season to see if everyone's complaints about their bullpen depth was valid. Um, that's a, you know, that's a funny thought. And I, I think, look, I think what they did in the regionals and the supers to an extent disproved that theory, but I will say, yes, the concern of the depth long-term has always been a factor. And I do think, um, we're going to find out in the next couple of days, how, how much depth did they really have or how much, you know, who can rise to the occasion? Do they have enough guys that, back there in the bullpen that are ready for the moment? And we're going to find that out because you're going to have to piece it together And not only are you going to have to piece it together with the guys that Jay trusts, but he's going to have to get some performances from some guys who haven't pitched in a while. Uh, I think RP3's done a good job chronicling the fact that David Coleman hasn't thrown in, I mean, what is it? I think it's more than a month at this point. So, you know, he's going to have to give them solid innings, and you're going to have to get, um, you know, some good performances elsewhere. I think also that the offense has to be as, as elite as it was at times this year. I think that becomes a big key. And then Doug says, what a disappointment. Ty Floyd works his behind off only to have the bullpen lose it for the team. Tigers can still come back and win it all. You know, look, I get that. Ty was great, but let's remember he worked himself into the issue that allowed the two runs to score. Um, those were his base runners when he walked the bases loaded and no, nobody out in that sixth inning. Um, I thought Thatcher Hurd did a, did a decent job. He could have, you know, yeah, he could have gotten out of that jam possibly, but I think he did a pretty good job overall. I think it's just... They needed the offense to come alive a little bit late in the game, and it just didn't happen. Now, again, it it's because they faced one of the best bullpens in the country, and you know they had the fidgety right-hander come in who was, you know, flipping his glove all over the place, and was a lot of fun to watch. He lasted, I think, two thirds of an inning. He then walked Tommy White, and then they went to Manassee. They went to their best guy, and he was able to get uh, Dylan, or no, was able to get. Tommy White out, so he walked Dylan Cruz. He was able to get Tommy White out and then was able to work a clean ninth inning. So um, overall, a tough way to lose it. But again, the Tigers have a chance to bounce back today, and they're going to face Tennessee, Um, and we'll see. We'll see if they get a pitching performance that we will remember for a long time, or maybe the Volunteers get the best of them. The, The other advantage I think you have in facing Tennessee tonight that, you know, you'd have had different scenarios, of course, if you'd have played Stanford. Um, because I think Stanford doesn't necessarily have as much pitching as Tennessee does, but their offense is better. But the advantage you have is I think that Tennessee offense is not elite, so I think you have a better chance to get a really good pitching performance. I would say it that way. I do think um, you have an opportunity, and and, and whether it's, you know, is it going to be Javen Coleman, then I think you have a better chance for him to be effective against Tennessee than you would have if he'd had to face a Stanford lineup that, in my opinion, is just a little bit deeper, a little bit better than Tennessee's. So it's kind of, you know, it's one it's half half dozen one way six the other in some ways, but I do think it's more beneficial to your pitching staff, which again, you're hoping gets the job done. That'll do it for hour number 1. We'll kick off hour 2 with Brett Chancy of the Locked On Astros podcast. That's next it's right here on the game. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be alright this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3.
Hour number two of RP3 and Company has arrived here on this Tuesday edition of the show. Dawson Iserlow filling in for RP3, who is on his way back from Omaha after covering LSU in the first couple games of the College World Series. We will be catching up with RP3 in hour number three to get an update on how the environment was last night, his thoughts on the first couple of games, and where he thinks they'll go from here with an elimination game now ahead tonight. We're also going to speak in hour number three with Ali Cassell of the Bird Rights, talk about those New Orleans Pelicans. They have been all over the rumor mills here in the last week or so, and and some of those rumors that I kind of brushed off last week, I'm starting to... You're starting to hear more and more reports, so I want to get an update from a guy who covers it closer than anybody and kind of see if he thinks there's any validity there or if he expects the Pelicans to just stand pat. So that'll be coming up in hour number three. In hour one, we covered, of course, a recap of that thrilling game between LSU and Wake Forest. Did not go the Tigers' way in the end um, and, and everything that went there. Our poll question of the day is with that one loss, where do you think the Tigers will come out in Omaha now? Do you think they lose today to Tennessee? Do you think they get back to Wake Forest but are unable to get over the hump there? Will they make that championship series but fall there, or will they win the whole thing still? Uh, keep those votes and comments coming. We'll share them throughout the show. But right now it's time to get back to the Houston Astros, and the weekend wasn't kind to them. The beginning of this week was not kind as well as they were blown out by the Mets. To talk a little bit more about that series against the Reds, the beginning of what happened against the Mets, and maybe kind of where they pivot to moving forward, it's Brett Chancy of the Locked On Astros podcast, as always on Tuesdays. Brett, good morning. It can't be a great day to be an Astros fan. You know, it is a little tough. This has been this is a bit of a shift where we were just a couple weeks ago. Um, felt like this team was making some moves in the right direction. You know, things are starting to look up. And then it just seems like, what in the heck is going on here? This offense cannot catch any breaks. This team just seems to be its own worst enemy right now. And, man, that was a brutal weekend series. And then, gosh, what what the Mets did to the Astros last night was an absolute shellacking. Yeah, so I wanted to first go back to the Red series because I was in attendance. First chance I've gotten to see the team in person this year, and I actually thought the crowd was outstanding on Friday night. It was near a sellout, if not a sellout. Um, in you know, good environment. JP France on the mound, who looked really good once again, and the offense just sputtered. Didn't do anything. They end up getting a run in the ninth inning, but even that just felt like a consolation prize, and that carried over into Saturday, which was ugly. Um, and Sunday, you blow a lead. So I, they found they lost almost in every different way you can lose, right? Lose a close one on Friday night, get blown out, and then blow a lead. Um, now the Reds are hot, but I, I just don't think that's what we were expecting. No, not at all. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, gosh, they just won another game last night, uh, the return of Joey Votto, and he even hit a home run to help them win that. And you just have a team in Cincinnati that, uh, gosh, they've they've caught fire, and it 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 makes you scratch your head. You go, okay, who is the Ellie De La Cruz, and who is the Joey Votto on this team? Like, like who is the young player that's going to spark something? And you know, who is the veteran that's going to kind of be the be the person that just steps up and says, okay, guys, enough is enough. And that's what they've got to find. Like right now. Um, I don't. I don't doubt this team's desire to to want to win. I don't doubt this team's desire to want to go back to back. But it just seems like they're flat right now. And emotionally, 
you know, where is where is Bregman? Where is Tucker? Where is Altuve? Where are there guys that are, you know, in the past it was it was Correa, it was Springer, it was Verlander, and you know, you clearly don't have those guys. You haven't had those guys. They won a World Series without all of those. You know, I mean, with Verlander, obviously, but who's going to get the locker room locked in and say, okay, guys, this is, this is not us. Um, they're just, they just look lost right now. Dawson, they, their, their bullpen's starting to falter. I mean, there's some frustration probably on their part because if you're going to go out there and deal, but your offense doesn't give you anything on, on the, on their end, it's really hard to stay consistently good um, because that's been a reason why they've stayed in these games. I mean, their their bullpen and their starting pitchers have allowed them for these games not to get away. You know, uh, until this weekend, they haven't been getting plummeled by teams. Right, and and so you know, one thing that I actually had a thought of last night because I saw Twitter start to get all worked up about it once again, and it's funny to me. Maldonado has, you know, been an awful offensive player his entire tenure with the Astros, but no one complains about it when they're dominant and they're winning. Um, but now, as it always seems to come up, starts to be conversation about how he's still in the lineup, um, and they do now have a for you know a possible replacement in Yiner Diaz who's swinging the bat pretty well. Do you think that gets revisited, or uh, I think you know I don't know it's Dusty Baker. So do you think there's anything changing in that regard? Well. Look, here's the deal. Um, I just i I think there's going to have to be some changes being made pretty soon because there, there's no way Jim Crane or Dana Brown are okay with the way things are going. And the Diaz versus Malady thing, it does get to be nauseating online. But look, I understand it because if you step back and you look at Hunter Brown. And what he's done with Yonder Diaz behind the plate, he has an ERA of 2.62. Then when Maldonado's behind the plate, he is uh, 3.95. And so, like, the stats are there to show that with Diaz, with Brown and some other pitchers, they actually perform better. But Maldonado is, he is the guy in the clubhouse. Um this is what I questioned yesterday. He threw, he had Hunter Brown throw four fastballs to Francisco Lindor. He's 257 versus the fastball, 143 versus breaking pitches. Why are we not throwing breaking pitches to him? And is that a pure execution thing on Hunter Brown's part where he didn't execute the pitch properly? Or is that a fault on calling the game? Because nobody's perfect. And, you know, when Maldonado makes a throw down to second and half the balls he throws go into the outfield, you just you just got to wonder how much more, like, leeway is Maldonado going to get to where it's hurting the team versus, okay, he's our guy. Like, you know, how do you not lose, a faith, lose faith in a guy or lose the locker room because you're starting a different guy? And is that even a thing now? So... It's a mystery because the club doesn't have a whole lot of things where the players come out and talk to the talk to the media. Um, there's a lot of kind of well, you know, HIPAA laws. They won't tell us about injuries. 
And so there's a lot of frustration on the fans' part, and, and I, I, I completely understand it. But I still have to go back to trusting the process and thinking that, that they've got things they're looking at that we don't even understand or know. So, Right. Well, you also look at the Mets series, and last night it begins with Scherzer on the mound, and um, you know Kevin Foote, who I, I talk a lot with about the Astros on, on footnotes, he uh, he would have described yesterday as a bad circumstance game because Max Scherzer's a guy who you know is going to figure it out at some point, and maybe some would argue the Astros are the perfect team to figure it out against. So he's dominant, and it wouldn't have mattered after all because Hunter Brown got touched up a little bit, and then the bullpen ends up kind of exploding late. I think the game was out of hand there. With all that being said, now it's kind of the same situation. Justin Verlander's a guy who's been there before. Of course, Astros fans are plenty familiar with him, and he hasn't been great, but now he has a chance to figure it out. Do you think he gets that done and figures things out against the Astros, or does this offense show us some life tonight? You know, uh, this would this would be one of those games where you would maybe expect them to get just rung up, and they just own the night, and they 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 realize who they are, who they can be, and they kind of take it to Justin Verlander. I was kind of hoping they did that to Scherzer. You know, Scherzer hasn't pitched eight innings in two seasons. So I didn't anticipate Scherzer to be that great last night. I didn't anticipate him to be bad. But, you know, to collect five hits off of him, you know, Altuve was 0 for 4 last night. You know, his Altuve's first look, it, 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 it begins and ends with Jose Altuve. Jose Altuve last night, his first at bat, three swings, three swings and misses, all three pitches were not even over the plate. Now his – um you know, Scherzer's slider was nasty last night. If they can catch mistakes that Verlander pitches, because we know he can throw mistakes over the plate, he can give up the long ball, and we can take advantage of that and exploit that early, then we can get things going in the right direction. Framber Valdez is the guy to absolutely to absolutely deal and shut down a team that hit that got fourteen hits last night. So Framber's the right guy to counter with. Will the bat show up? Will the ball leave the ballpark? Um, what kind of lineup will Dusty put out there? And no matter who he puts out there, they've just got to step it up and say, I know this is Verlander, but it's time for us to flip this thing. Because the further and further they get away, just the harder it is going to be down the road to make up ground against the uh, – because they're in third place now in their division. This isn't just us and the Rangers. The Angels have jumped us and – they're now five games back of Texas, and we're six and a half games back of Texas. Well, I wanted to ask you something more big picture as we as we wrap the conversation up, because I thought I saw you made a comment about a thread that Ben DeBose had, um, who's with USA Today. Um, but but overall, the idea kind of of thinking of the trade deadline a little bit differently than we than we maybe were, because we thought maybe they're going to be right there, they'll make a move or two and make a run as they always do. But this idea of maybe, look, not pushing the envelope, it's not saying you're tanking, but rather reconsidering the sense of urgency and thinking to yourself, maybe it's more you know, advantageous to take things slow this year. If we make a run with the guys we have, then great. But also, we can take it slow. We can get Luis Garcia, Lance McCullers, Jordan will be healthy in theory for the whole year next year, and we'll kind of reevaluate things. What are, where are you now um, as far as what you want them to do come trade deadline time? You know, my thing is you have to see when the trade deadline – well, like when it gets closer, okay, how many sellers are there? And if the sellers are 
if there's a, if there are a lot more sellers than people that are trying to contend, then maybe you can put a decent package together for maybe another arm, maybe another bat. But if you have to pay a high price, is the high price worth the rental? Is the high like who is the guy that's out there that's going to move the needle? I mean, I really think there's only one guy you could trade for that would move the needle that can comes to my mind every time, and that's Shohei Otani. And there's no way the Astros are going to go out and give the Angels what they want for him. Okay, so do I? I think there's value in maybe getting a mid arm, maybe getting a mid level bat, not giving up a whole lot, and saying, okay, let's go into the playoffs with who we have. Because there's no point to sacrifice your future for a rental. It doesn't make any sense. And you go say, let's let's get the wild card going into the playoffs. Let's catch fire. This team is clutch in the end. And maybe they can still do it. Let's focus on 2024. That may be an approach that I, if you have told me three weeks ago, would you consider this? I would have said, absolutely not. That, that sounds terrible. That's a terrible idea. But you don't sacrifice long-term future with a club that missed two years of first and second round picks just to get a guy that is probably not going to be the X factor. That's the question you ask yourself, who is going to come into this club that's going to make the difference. And if they're not out there, why are you giving up stuff for someone who's not going to make the difference when you have just as much a chance going there and going back now than you do maybe adding one or two pieces. A lot to think about for Dana Brown and that front office, and it'll be interesting to see how they attack it. Brett, appreciate your time as always. Thanks for coming on and uh, discussing the grim times in Houston. Hopefully next week they'll have something turned around and something better to talk about. No, yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it, um, and I appreciate you all listening to us. And, hey, if people that are listening happen to be in the Houston area on Friday night, we're doing a live event at Home Run Dugout out in Katy, Texas. We're doing a live podcast, giving away tickets, and then we're going to have a watch party, Astros versus Dodgers. So come hang out with us. Check us out on our social media pages and follow us. And as always, we're your team every day. Go Strohs. Thanks, Brett. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station than going to the dentist. Take that, dental hygiene. This is The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Wake Forest got it done against the LSU Tigers last night in the winner's bracket game. But before that, there was a loser's bracket elimination game that took place between Tennessee and Stanford. Of course, uh, Wake Forest beat Stanford in their first game of the College World Series. LSU defeated Tennessee. That Those games were back on Saturday. And those teams were playing to stay alive. And early on, it was all cardinal as Stanford scored a couple of runs in the bottom half of the first. They threw a runner out at the plate in the top half. They looked like they were going to get another great start from Quinn Matthews, who, of course, threw 156 pitches in that kind of famous Super Regional effort to keep the Cardinal going in the Supers last week. Well, he started out pretty well. And, again, he 
dealt with a little bit of trouble, but worked out of the jam and then was able to put up three straight zeros afterwards. So it was a four to nothing lead headed into the top of the fifth after Stanford tacked on another two runs in the bottom of the third. But that was the point where things kind of went sideways for Quinn Matthews. Tennessee ends up getting four runs in the top half of that fifth inning to make things go from four to four all the way or four to nothing rather all the way to tie it up at four apiece so they just pieced together hits too it was nothing but just singles as the inning started with a single they ended up with two more loaded the bases up they had a sacrifice fly they end up getting another RBI single, and it just was a couple more RBI singles, and that's four runs. They never had the big bases-clearing double, never hit the home run, but just kind of pieced their way to a four-run inning, and that's when you felt like uh, Quinn Matthews just didn't have it any longer. He ends up going just four and two-thirds, giving up ten hits and those four earned runs. So from there, you have a 4-4 game, kind of starts over, and in the top half of the seventh is when Tennessee would break through for two more. Uh, And that's ended up being all that they needed because they got an absolutely outstanding relief appearance from Chase Burns. Now, we saw Burns, of course, come in in the Southern Miss Super Regional. He had a couple of electric performances there. I think there was a famous kind of, you know, situation where he came off the mound all fired up. And you thought maybe Chase Burns is figuring things out. And the ERA is not great because he's been up and down this season. Now, we know the stuff is electric. He throws over 100 miles an hour at times. But last night, Chase Burns was on, and he was on for an extended period of time. He ends up coming in for Chase Dolander, who wasn't great, gave up four runs in three innings. But Burns comes in, ends up going six shutout. He gives up two hits and no runs. He did not walk a single battle, which is key for Burns, and he struck out nine on the way to keeping Tennessee alive. Yet another entertaining game in this College World Series that has been just full of them. Stanford scores four runs in the first three innings and never gets another run across in the final six thanks to that performance from Chase Burns, and that keeps Tennessee alive. So it's been exciting, and now the Volunteers, they keep all three SEC teams in play, but they will uh, there will be only two left after today because Tennessee's going to face LSU in an elimination game. We've already told you about that a good bit. The game's going to be at 6 o'clock. Drew Beam is going to be on the mound for Tennessee. And so, you know, look, there's some interesting storylines throughout this. Of course, these teams met the other night. Paul Skeens was dominant. The Tennessee lineup all season long, we talked to Ryan Chumpert last week, and he told us, you know, kind of the inconsistency there is the big concern for the Volunteers. What what are they going to get on a nightly basis at the plate? They know they have enough pitching to win big games. They know they have enough pitching to stay alive. And he mentioned when we talked to him, about the LSU game that, yeah, maybe this Tennessee team is a little bit, you know, more well-equipped to stay alive in a, you know, long-term, you know, loser's bracket situation than some others would be. Now, LSU faced Drew Beam. That was back on April the 1st. That was the third game of the three-game set. LSU had already won the series at Alec Box Stadium going into that third game. And Drew Beam was actually not great. Now, there were some defensive miscues that went against him. He went four innings. He gave up eight hits and six runs. Only one of them was earned. He didn't walk anyone. He struck out four. So that was what he did against the Tigers. They were able to get to him a little bit. That game, if you'll remember, though, was one of Thatcher Hurd's worst performances of the year. He did not record an out. Gave up four hits, two walks, and six earned runs. Radley Cooper came out of the pen and gave him five and two-thirds, but also gave up six runs. And LSU lost the game 14-7. to 
So I don't know if we have a great indication of, you know, kind of where LSU stands against Drew Beam because that game was 10 to nothing in the second inning. And of course, as I've kind of mentioned before, pitchers, it's just a different mentality when you have such a big lead and all you have to do is try to get outs. So I think heading into the matchup tonight, I'm excited to see what it's going to look like. Now, overall for the year, when you talk about a guy like Drew Beam, which we've kind of chronicled the depth that Tennessee has, him being potentially a third starter at times, look, he went 9-4 and four with a 3.780 ERA. We know he has top-tier talent. Now, opposing hitters hit 266 against him. That's significantly higher than all of their other starting pitchers and some of their best relief options. So, you know, the book on Beam is that you can hit him at times, and I think stringing together base hits is going to be a key for LSU tonight. He doesn't have a ton of walk issues. He's usually able to command the zone decently well. So I think, you know, overall, if you're able to kind of string together base hits, like I mentioned, keep him in the zone, battle, kind of force him to get over the plate and into the zone, then you'll have a chance to score some runs. And I do think the offense is going to have to show up because pitching-wise, you're going to be down to some guys who either A, haven't thrown in a while or haven't been extended in a while because in the regionals and the supers, you got great performances from your starting pitchers and Thatcher heard in long relief roles, and you didn't necessarily have to go to some of those guys. So I think all that's in play, and I will be interested to see kind of how that turns out. The other matchup today in Omaha is TCU and Oral Roberts. Um, I went back, you know, of course, Oral Roberts was the team that I was uh, a little bit high on from the very beginning. I mentioned them a lot in the Stillwater Regional. They ended up winning it as a four seed. I said they weren't really, you know, your average four seed given how many wins they had in the regular season and how kind of dominant they were at times. Some of their big wins, they had two wins over Oklahoma State. So we've kind of covered all that. They end up beating Oregon in the Supers, and they show up to Omaha, and there's a couple ways it can go, right? It can be the feel-good story of, wow, it's just great that they're here. But they got a matchup against TCU in which they came back from behind, hit the huge three-run home run, which was incredible to see. They win that game, and and look, they were right there against Florida. They end up losing the game 5-4. to four. Florida has the whole confusing thing, in case you didn't catch that one. Basically, they used up all their mound visits and had to pull their closer, their All-American closer, when they didn't want to. Had to go to the freshman left-hander, but he was able to get things done, and Oral Roberts loses a one-run game. On the other hand, TCU was one of the hottest teams in the country heading into the tournament. They dominated in Fayetteville, winning that regional. They went to, well, they actually hosted Indiana State because of some logistical issues that we covered a good bit. They beat Indiana State 2-0 and headed into Omaha red-hot. They were quieted by Oral Roberts, but they bounced back and they went a one-run 4-3 elimination game against Virginia. I think what's interesting about that matchup, which is going to be uh, today in the afternoon game, the early game before LSU and Tennessee, is that TCU's offense has been quieted a little bit. They weren't quite as hot, even in Indiana State. I think um, you know the Sycamores were able to slow their offense down in this red-hot run they were on in the regionals, kind of came to a, you know, a slow, not a halt, but a slow. Well, they were able to bounce back and get that win. But again, the offense didn't dominate against Virginia either. They went a 4-3 to ball game. So can Oral Roberts' pitching staff continue to do so, or is TCU due to break out again? And on the other hand, if you're Oral Roberts, I mean, you're obviously in a position that I don't think many at all thought you'd be in. Of course, I'm sure those in the locker room felt like a run like this was possible. But now are they able to keep the magic going? Whoever wins this is going to have a tall task, potentially having to beat Caglinon and Florida, but then having to beat them again. And Florida certainly has some pitching depth there, so and also going to be fresher. It's a tall task, but 
somebody's going to get the right to at least make that attempt, and I think that's going to be a really good ball game. You know, if everything we've seen in Omaha is an indication, we're going to have two more good ones between Oral Roberts and TCU, and then in the nightcap between LSU and Tennessee. So going to be exciting to see kind of how that all plays out from Charles Schwab Field. Um, let's see if we have more and more good baseball games or if finally there's a, a blowout in the cards here. Hopefully it's a couple more good games. So we'll take a timeout. We come back. We'll talk a little bit more about that U.S. Open. I want to kind of get back to a couple of points that I made yesterday, maybe kind of elaborate on those a little bit more. You're listening to RP3 and Company right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. The U.S. Open took place last weekend, and RP3 and I talked about it a decent bit. It's one of his favorite golf events. It's actually his favorite major. It's um, certainly certainly up there on my list. But, you know, this tournament, this iteration of it was interesting. It was at a place that it had never been before at LACC. It had been in Los Angeles, but it had been quite a while since it had even been in that city, and it had never been specifically at the Los Angeles Country Club. A course that's rather exclusive, not a ton of people knew much about it, not even some of these tour pros. A lot of them had never played it before. And on Thursday, the first day of the event, we saw two 62s put down, Ricky Fowler and Xander Shoffley both shooting what was the lowest round in U.S. Open history. So I think that kind of started the weekend out on a note where everyone went, wait a minute, this course isn't the challenge that it was supposed to be. Um, of course, during U.S. Open week, essentially a bunch of videos come out of people um, dropping golf balls into rough and it disappearing and you know rolling balls on the fairway and showing how they're like glass and how it's going to be so difficult. That's kind of become tradition. But this year, after that first round at least, I think everyone sat back and said, wait a minute, this isn't what it was supposed to be. As the weekend, on, as the weekend went on, I should say, the course did get tougher. Because, again, the leaders were at 8-under through one round, and the leaders finished. The winner of this tournament was 10-under par in Wyndham-Clark. So the test got tougher. The winds picked up a little bit later in the week. Um, they let it dry out, and it got a little bit drier and firmer, much tougher to stick a ball on the green. And on Sunday, it was very difficult. Tommy Fleetwood shooting 63 was maybe more impressive than Ricky and Xander shooting 62 on Thursday. But overall, I just had some thoughts, and I and I originally was, you know, kind of upset about the fact that the course wasn't playing as difficult as we maybe expected it to. But in the end, I ended up being somewhat okay with that. Look, I would prefer the winner of this of the U.S. Open to not be ten under. I think. Look, it was three straight years. I think of six under par before that. I think that's a fine number. I personally like it more when it's like two to four under. And you have guys really battling for pars throughout the week, and maybe you only have two or three guys that are under par when it's all said and done. That's my favorite iterations of it. But I don't think ten under is this travesty that you need to be, you know, that everyone needs to be super upset about because they think, look, other courses are going to put together lower numbers, and we'll see what happens when they go back to Shinnecock in a couple of years. And 
you know, if it's a year, they're going back to Pebble, of course, a couple of times in the near future. And if the winds are picking up at Pebble and it's the right, you know, weather conditions, then Pebble can play very, very tough as well. It just all depends. But, you know, again, some of that's not in their control because the weather plays a factor in the conditions, a, a very big factor. So you can design the course super difficult, but certain times if the weather conditions are ideal, these guys are the best in the world and they're still going to put down low scores. So with all that being said, my biggest problem, I think, with the event was the lack of energy and the lack of the fans, and we saw some reasons for that. RP3 and I touched on it a little bit. There's some rumors and some you know stories that have come out about how the tickets were handled this year at the Country Club and who had access to them and how they were distributed. And, of course, Los Angeles in general sometimes is a little bit of an interesting sports fan area and who is able to get access to these tickets and what the prices are and, and all that thing. Now, look, I, I don't really care too much about how or what went wrong here. All I know is that I don't think you can have a U.S. Open that lacks energy and, you know, doesn't have that many people there in the end. Like, I just – and they did the thing, and we talked about it, where they let all the fans crowd around the the ropes at the very end there, but I thought that was kind of like a, we know this has been horrible, let's see what we can do to try to make it better at the very end. That's what it felt like to me at least. And I just think, you know, in a year that it wasn't necessarily golf's toughest test the way it should be sometimes, and, you know, it didn't necessarily have the household name who won, who I'm not upset by that. I think Wyndham Clark was fully deserving. He played the best golf all weekend long uh, as far as who the being the most consistent and hitting a couple of huge shots um, throughout his round on Sunday. But with all that being said, I thought you needed at least that atmosphere of a U.S. Open, which, again, you know, the U.S. Open's got – you've got the traditional roars, right, that have taken place when Tiger's – sunk a big putt in some of his wins there and you've just had all that energy and emotion surrounding the U.S. Open and some of the most passionate fans golf fans in the world um, showing up to America's you know premier open event Um, and I just didn't think you saw that because of course the Masters has its own mystique and even if the crowd uh, the crowds at Augusta of course are fantastic as well but even if they aren't you just have the overall feeling of being at Augusta when you're watching the broadcast anyway uh, at the U.S. Open, sometimes maybe you have that depending on the location. Of course, Pebble Beach has the scenic views and everything that go along with playing at, at a course like that. But again, in a situation in LACC where we didn't, as a fan base, as a group of people, we didn't have any sort of connection to that golf course in any way. So I think the fans create that environment. That's something we lost so much, right, when COVID happened and there weren't fans at sporting events. So overall, getting back to my point here, I think that's what I was the most disappointed with by the U.S. Open this season, and and I'm hoping that that looks a lot better next year and in the coming years, no matter where the venue is and no matter who's winning the tournament. I want it to feel like a U.S. Open, not only uh, you know for the golfers, but on the broadcast, and I think that we can do a better job of that. So with all that being said, it was still an entertaining weekend of golf, and I thought you saw a lot of great performances. It was great to see Ricky Fowler back in contention. Again, I have a little personal bias there as he was my guy growing up, the guy I always followed in golf. So seeing him back in contention was awesome. He struggled on Sunday and certainly was never really a factor in the final round of the event. Um, It was interesting to see guys like Brooks Kepka struggle throughout the weekend. Of course, how hot he had been winning the PGA Championship, making a run at the Masters. And Rory being right back in the mix was interesting as well because I think we've certainly seen and had some doubts about what Rory was going to be able to do, um, especially with all the distraction off the course. The majors... It's, it's interesting now with the live merger and everything like that, you know, somewhat behind us. I guess there's still a lot of questions to be answered, but 
Um, it had a little bit of a different feel because of that. That wasn't a storyline, right? And and the guys like Kepka and DeChambeau and Dustin Johnson, who was in the mix for a while here, even into Sunday, all those guys had a different feeling around them, right? Um, and the last thought I have about the U.S. Open this year is that Scotty Scheffler's run of consistency right now is unbelievable. Obviously, Tiger's run in the mid-2000s and, and throughout the 2000s and, and into the early 2010s, what he put together with all the majors and how dominant he was, winning so many events so easily, it seemed, right, by all these winning events by five, six shots with regularity. Uh, I think that is certainly not being matched right now with what Scotty Scheffler's doing. But I'd say it's a step right behind that because he's not winning every major and he's not winning every tournament, but he's been in the top 12, what is it, every single event this season. Like, I just don't know if people realize how difficult what Scotty's done is. And it's it's actually, you know, if he's able to figure out the putter, then maybe he will go on this crazy run where he wins two or three majors in a single season because he's that good. And I just think, look, usually you see those guys even, you know, look at Brooks Kepka. He was great in the first two majors, even though he hadn't been playing well or playing consistently on the live tour and things like that. He ends up putting together great runs. But then when you look at it, he ends up struggling at the U.S. Open and he's not necessarily in contention. Scotty's been in contention every step of the way in every opportunity. So I think that's been impressive. Let's go out to the game hotline. You're live on RP3 and Company. How's it going? Oh, good. Look, I'm just tuning in, and I know they're off the subject of the of the World Series now. But did they talk about the TrackMan data on Ty Floyd's last inning of that game? Um, no, I hadn't touched on it. What, what specifically? Well, they Track TrackMan said every pitch that he threw in that inning was in the strike zone. And okay, I, I, it's a it's a thing from TrackMan. I did see that. I think it's the ESPN, right? Um, they published some of their strike zone technology there afterwards. I did see a little bit of that. Um, yeah, look, I thought the uh, I thought the home plate umpire was not consistent and was not great all night. Uh, I don't know if every pitch in that inning was in the zone the way that that kind of suggested. I think sometimes maybe you'd need a closer look at it. Uh, but I yeah. thought he was inconsistent. I thought he was bad for both teams, and I I think. On college baseball's biggest stage, they simply they have to be better than that. I would agree. Uh, and and the and the guy that pitched when Skeens was in the game was just as equally terrible for both sides. Those two guys, neither one of them. How do you get into the World Series? I mean, no, these a, guys are clowns. You know, it's it's a fair question because again, you're not only supposed to have the best players, but this is supposed to be a reward for the best umpires throughout the season to be you know sent to to the biggest stages. And and yeah. I, you know, and, and the funny thing is, in the in the other games I've watched, the Oral Roberts TCU game, um, the Florida Oral Roberts game, I didn't think they were nearly as bad. But on the other side of the bracket, for whatever reason, yeah, there's been a lot of inconsistency. I, I agree. It just it's just really irking to me that, that someone like that could get into the World Series. Okay, well that's it. I'm, I just wanted to blow off some steam. No, I gotta appreciate the call. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. You know, and, and look, I, I talked about it a good bit. I didn't necessarily bring up that that aspect of it. I did see that there was a, several pitches that looked like they were in the zone, and the ESPN data kind of suggested that a few of them were. And, yeah, no, I, I thought it was not great um, from a home plate umpire perspective. I just thought the calls were inconsistent. And, um, you know, look, umpires aren't perfect, just like pitchers and, and, and hitters and baseball players aren't perfect, too. They're going to have bad nights. Um, but you'd like to see some more consistency on college baseball's biggest stage. 
And I certainly hope that we see, um, you know, better balls and strike calls tonight for LSU against Tennessee, uh, this afternoon as well for Oral Roberts and TCU, and in the rest of the World Series because, um, you know, one of the things you, you can only ask for when you get to this time of the year is that the players decide on the field, and it's not external factors and, and you know, technicalities and things like that. So hopefully that's all going to be better. we got to take a timeout. When we come back, we'll wrap up hour number two, get you set up for hour three, and when our first guest will be RP3. That's next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station over watching a mandated webinar at work. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming to this exciting meeting today to discuss... Take that, productivity in the workplace. This is The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back in to RP3 and Company. Dawson Iserlo filling in for RP3 on this Tuesday edition of the show as he's traveling back from Omaha where he saw the Tigers in their first couple of games. We're going to be talking with him to kick off hour number three, getting an update on everything that is Omaha. We'll talk to him about the jello shot record that fell yesterday, in addition, of course, to an incredible baseball game that he witnessed between LSU and Wake Forest. That has the Demon Deacons in control of that side of the bracket in the College World Series and the Tigers now with some work to do. The poll question of the day involves those Tigers, and it's that with one loss now, how far do you think they'll go? 35% of you say they're going to lose today to Tennessee. 43% of you say they'll beat the Volunteers, and then they'll lose either the first or the second game to Wake Forest. Of course, they would have to beat Wake twice given that Wake doesn't have a loss yet. 11% say they'll make it to the championship series, but lose to whoever comes out of the other side of the bracket, and 11% still have them winning it all. Ton on Twitter says, when did Angel Hernandez become a college ump? That umpire needs to be kicked out of the tournament. Um, Yeah, he wasn't great. He was not great last night. And um, I would be interested to see, you know, I think all these numbers have stats the way all these umpires have stats the way uh, that players do, you know, and I think it's it'd be interesting. Was tonight an uncharacteristically bad night, or is this an umpire that's home plate, you know, that uh, balls and strikes always vary? Um, that would be something. And, I again, from what I know, I, 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 I was under the impression that umpires had to earn their way into the College World Series the same way teams did. Usually the best, most consistent umpires got the calls um, to, to be in the World Series, but maybe that's not the case. I'm not exactly sure about that. A dog with a bone on Twitter says LSU been overrated all year and it finally catches up to them today. Uh, Who Dad Forever says, says uh, yeah, the sixth inning, talking about the umpiring in the sixth inning, that, that it was particularly bad there. Yeah, no, look, I, I, think it, I think it was bad. And a couple of those calls against Ty Floyd certainly maybe changed that inning. Um, I don't think they were all strikes, and I know I've seen that going around that it said every pitch was in the zone. Um, I don't think that was the case. I think certainly a couple of them missed, but I do think he didn't get the benefit of the doubt on on some of the close ones. And the biggest problem I have with it, too, look, I think there's also a difference, and some people would probably disagree with me on this. 
if an umpire is, is consistently giving off the plate, let's say it's it's you know two inches out off the outside corner, they're giving that call and it's all night. If you wanted, it's there. They're going to call that a strike. I'm fine with that, as opposed to the guy who misses a call on the outside corner in the first inning, but then in the second inning he's given off the plate on the inside corner, and in the third inning that outside pitch that was a strike in the first two innings now is a ball, and then he starts giving below the knees in the fourth and fifth innings. Like that's I have way more of a problem than that than a guy who consistently misses a call that's off the inside corner or off the outside corner, but he's giving it all game. Consistency's all I ask of umpires, and as a hitter and as a pitcher, if that if I'm told in the first and second innings that's going to be a strike all night and you live up to that and that's a strike all night, then I'll make the adjustment myself. I can do that. But I can't make an adjustment when I don't know where the strike zone is, especially as a hitter and really as a pitcher. I mean, when you, when you don't know where that zone is, and now it's 3-2, and you have a great hitter at the plate, and you go, well, in the first inning, I was given off the outside corner by a couple inches, so I'm really going to try and hit that spot. You hit your spot, and you don't get the call. That's when you don't know what to do as a player. And so I think that's that's my biggest problem with the way it was officiated last night is that it was consistently off, you know, it was all over the place, right? And and it was just, it was never something that the players could get used to, right? So, uh, we'll we'll see. I'm hoping the umpiring is better tonight, and that it's not an issue. I will say that you know, I don't know if you want to call it a silver lining. I know LSU fan wouldn't think of it that way, but it was pretty bad for Wake as well. I do think LSU got more of the bad end of it, but again, I think part of that's because of where Hartle was trying to live in the zone, living at the bottom. He was getting the benefit of the doubt on that call. Um, but either way, I think it has to be better, especially at this at the highest level. You know, early games early in the season, you, you know, sometimes umpires are getting back in the rhythm of things as well, and you can expect some calls to be missed. But it's College World Series, so I do think we need to be better there. But all in all, it was a uh, highly entertaining baseball game between, in my opinion, the two best teams in the country at this point. And we'll see. They might have a couple more matchups with each other coming up. But first, LSU's got to take care of Tennessee tonight at 6 o'clock. That's going to do it for hour number two. We'll speak with RP3 and Ali Cassell in hour number three of RP3 and Company right here on The Game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Our number three is here. We have covered a lot. We, of course, did a little bit of an in-depth dive into the LSU Wake Forest baseball game last night. Gave my thoughts on that. Plenty of great baseball, plenty of uh, questionable umpiring, and all in all, great game that unfortunately for the Tigers, they were on the wrong side of with a clutch hit late from Bennett Lee. We also talked about the Houston Astros. Man, they are struggling. They are uh, hitting maybe the biggest adversity yet that they've hit. We've had all the injuries. We've known about it all year, but now the injuries seem to really be playing a role on the field in that offense, despite being more healthy than the pitching staff, just can't figure things out. Also circled back around to the U.S. Open, talked a little bit about that, as well as all the other College World Series games and previewed kind of the upcoming schedule here for today. 
But to talk a little bit more about Omaha, the College World Series in general, LSU's performance last night and what they've got in front of them, as well as a jello shot record that fell, is RP3 the host of this show on a normal basis? How are you today? I am doing tremendous. The sun is out. It's a beautiful day here in Omaha, Nebraska, and we're about to uh, get on the road, D-Lo, to make the uh, long journey back home so I can make sure that you don't completely Wally pit me out of a job. So that's what I'm really concerned about. I'm not concerned about anything else. I'm really concerned about that. So you're not concerned about the ability of the – LSU fans to extend the Jello shot record now that that has fallen. Um, I understand you were somewhat in the area near the time of the record being. You know, how, how, what was your perspective on that whole situation? I, ironically, I was actually inside Rocco's when that happened. When Mr. Graves, the owner and uh, you know originator of Raising Canes, was inside Rocco's, and he, he went ahead and bought six thousand shots to get them over the hump, to go ahead and eclipse Ole Miss's record set last year. And the LSU fans went crazy, and there was high fives, and there was hugs, and there was go Tigers. And it was it was a great, great scene that spilled over into the street because Rocco's is literally a stone's throw away from Charles Schwab Field. Um, but, yeah, that record probably won't be as massive as we once thought it was going to be because the Tigers' trip here in Omaha could be a very short one. Well, okay, so that's one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is that they've got a chance to stay alive tonight, but let's go back to last night because the buildup was huge. Um, for, for me, it was the game of the year in college baseball. I think the two best teams, and look, there's a chance we're going to see it maybe a couple more times here in the next few days, but... Uh, what was the vibe going into it? Uh, compare it to the vibe, you know, before the LSU Tennessee game. How was the feeling within Charles Schwab Field and the surrounding areas? Well, yesterday there was far more LSU fans out and about, and there was more LSU fans setting up tailgating as well because the media parking lot is also the same parking lot that is used for the majority of the tailgating spots. And it was filled with LSU fans. I mean, it at first glance, when you're walking down, it felt like you were at Tiger Stadium for a football game. So they were out. And many of them that we ran into, some folks from Ville Platte and uh, folks from Lake Charles that were there. I ran into a lot of different people uh, that I knew, some folks from Lafayette that were there as well, bumped into them, literally bumped into them inside Rocco's. The, look. The excitement level for this game was off the charts. And it was a game that, that delivered because the two best teams in college baseball, the two teams that were ranked number one for the majority of the season, faced off. And it lived up to the billing. I mean, it, it, truly, it truly did. These are the two teams, and it was a heavyweight fight. I thought there would be some more runs scored in this game. I was surprised by how much the pitching dominated this matchup. Now, part of that was the wind was blowing in last night for that game, and both skippers talked about that playing a role, and that helped both pitching staff because uh, basically took away the long ball out of the equation. Uh, it was an immensely exciting game. It was probably one of the best college baseball games I've ever covered in my career. It was just 
that good. Every moment, Dawson, you were glued to what was happening in the in-game action. And then, you know, LSU goes up. They, they finally get to Wake Forest staff, and they get a couple runs. And you're literally thinking, that may be enough. Like, two runs felt like it was going to be enough for LSU to win this game. And Ty was dealing career-high 10 strikeouts for him. He only gave up two base hits through five innings. And then everything kind of went sideways starting in the sixth. Well, let's go there, but back we'll back it up a little bit because Ty Floyd, you know, throughout the season there was questions at times. I think people forget sometimes there was legitimate questions about if he was going to be a viable number two option. Now it feels like he's, you know, the second best option they have behind Paul Skeens by a long shot. And he was great early on. The fastball, his ability to beat guys with primarily the one pitch, the fastball, then mixing the change up to lefties, I thought it was as sharp as he's looked all year. And, I mean, I thought he outpitched Josh Hartle for the first four innings of this game and even into the fifth a little bit. But that's where he runs into trouble. So, from your perspective, do you think it's a situation where he tires going into the third time through the order? I know he wasn't getting any help with the home plate umpire behind the plate there, but what happened in that fifth inning? Well, look, he was able to get, you know, uh, he had a couple of innings uh, that he struck out three batters, right, after giving up a hit or giving up a walk. So he had great command. And as you mentioned, you know, he's kind of been overshadowed all season long. He doesn't have all the pitches that Paul has, right? So that's the thing. And Paul is special. That guy's going to be a top five draft pick. But Ty is a very good SEC pitcher. He just doesn't have all the pitches that Paul Skeens has. And, but last night, Heat, man, that fastball was absolute nastiness. And the Wake Forest batters looked absolutely clueless on what to do with it. I think part of it is that he is not a guy that can give you eight or nine innings. So I think maybe he was a little tired. Once again, it was a career-high 10 Ks for him when he went out there for the sixth inning. And look, the ump was all over the place last night with that strike zone. And he just was, not only in the sixth inning, but early on, right, it was – and all of a sudden the zone – the bottom of the zone is really big, but now the top isn't. And he was all over the place. So that definitely put them at a disadvantage. But what I saw being in the park is that once Ty didn't get some of those strike calls go his way, it snowballed just enough on him where he walked the next two batters. Like he – that first batter, really, where he didn't get the calls and he walked them, Dawson, I felt, I said, okay. And then the way he kind of, his his reaction to it, his facial expression, his body language, you know, he, you could tell he was a little frustrated by it. And I just don't think he was able to kind of power through that. And then he walked the next one. And then he right. got even a little bit more frustrated. And then he walks the next one. And now all of a sudden the bases are loaded. And what was a gem of a game that he was pitching, now all of a sudden they're in trouble. And I think that's what happened to Ty. It was the best, you could argue, it was the best pitching performance of the season by him on the biggest stage against the best team in the country. Yet, just a couple things went the wrong way. Thatcher came in. He didn't necessarily pitch bad, but he did give up, you know, the the hit that, that tied up the ball game, and then obviously Wake Forest, courtesy of a former Tulane Green Wave catcher, you know, comes up with a huge hit later on for Wake Forest to win the game. 
Yeah, and I said fifth there. It was the sixth inning where it went sideways for Floyd. But let's talk a little bit more about Bennett Lee because before he gets the big hit, he makes the play at the plate. That's just – I don't know if that oh. – that's one of those plays where I don't know if people realize how difficult what he did was because of the way that the, – the angle of where the throw's coming in from third base and Brock Wilkin who makes a, a tough play in his own right and double clutches on it. Uh, the replay, and I'm, I'm sure you got to see it after the fact, but – it was about as close as it can be. I think it's a situation where if he's called safe on the field, it stays safe. But I do think it was the right call to stick with him being out. Just unbelievable turn of events there. Because, again, if he's called safe, it's now 3-2 LSU with runners at first and second, nobody out. It was a huge momentum shift in the game. And I don't uh, – how do I say this in, in a nice way? I, I don't – you know, I'm not going to be critical of Jay Johnson and Trey Morgan. I know some LSU fans were on social media, and they're like, I can't believe he ran. I can't believe they did that. And, and look, Jay explained it afterwards. They felt like they had to be aggressive because they said, if we score there, what, three to two, just like you said with runners on the corner, and still got an opportunity to add more runs. And they showed the replay, and I'm not for sure if the replay that we got shown over and over again inside the press box is the same replay that you were able to see on television. But he was probably less than half an inch from being out. Like, like it was that close. And oh, yeah, it was. It was a phenomenal thing. If Trey maybe slides with his feet first, does he, does he sneak in there instead? Maybe. Um, you know, if the throw isn't exactly perfect, maybe if the catch and the way he positioned himself at the plate if he's just a sixteenth of an inch off, Trey scores. I mean, it's one of those kind of like legendary plays that we witnessed, and it took all the air out of LSU sales because they got the out, and then it was a double play ball, and then boom, done. And you know, the 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 bigger story for me, and that was a key moment. Credit Wake Forest pitching. We heard a lot of people be critical of it. Well, they pitch in the ACC. They haven't faced an LSU lineup. They haven't faced a lineup this good. Wake Forest's pitchers, Dawson held the best lineup in college baseball who runs on five hits. That's it. That's yeah. it. Dylan Cruz was not a factor. The best player, best position player in the country was not a factor. The vaunted lineup did nothing, with the exception of Tommy Tanks, right? He was, the, he, was the, he was the bright spot in the lineup. He was able to get on. And here's the other thing. Wake Forest wasn't absolutely dominant as well because they, I do believe they walked five LSU hitters. Right. So LSU had opportunities. They had guys on the base pass to play the small ball, and they just couldn't get it done in this heavyweight bout, and Wake Forest proved to be the better team last night in Omaha. Well, you're right, and, and it's, you know, they scored two runs, and one of them was kind of handed to them on the botched play in left field that's not ruled an error because baseball is a funny game. But anyway, uh, you know, I did send you a text in the top of the ninth uh, heading in to LSU's final at bat, and I said, if Dylan Cruz gets to the plate, LSU will win this game. Seven, eight, and nine were due up. They needed someone to get on, and Cruz would have come up. Um, but I think it's why baseball is so beautiful in some ways. You have the opportunity for the legacy moment to come up where the best player in the country is going to have a chance to tie or win it. 
and he never came up because Manassi was able to get him one, two, three, and was pretty dominant, by the way, in that ninth inning. And we were maybe robbed of an opportunity for Dylan Cruz to cement his legacy. But again, I think kind of that's the beauty of baseball. It just didn't happen that way. And um, that sets up potentially, you know, maybe he'll have a chance here in the next couple of days. But I did think it was interesting how it ended. You go seven, eight, nine, And again, if somebody gets on, then you're facing Cruz. And then behind that, Tommy White, they just couldn't get anything going in the ninth inning. And what's, and, and you're right. This is, we talk about it all the time on our show, don't we? It's baseball. Baseball is the great equalizer because the game itself will do things that dictate the outcome. And on Saturday night against Tennessee, the seven, eight, nine hitters for LSU got five of the team's 10 hits. And those same three guys in the top of the ninth, two of them struck out, the other one grounded out. Right? So that's what happens. Baseball happens. And all these teams are great, and all these teams are the best in the country. And look, Wake Forest took the approach this last offseason that they were going to stockpile arms out of the transfer portal and have probably more pitching than any team in the country. And guess what? It's paying off in a big way. And now for LSU, being dropped down into the loser's bracket, now they have to play three games in three days to get to the championship weekend, Austin. And they're going to have to start it off tonight with the Tennessee Volunteers, who they're looking to beat the second time in four days and for, I do believe, the fourth time in five tries on the season. And they had a miraculous come-from-behind victory against Stanford to avoid elimination. And after they get past Tennessee, then LSU's going to have to beat Wake Forest not once but twice. So can it be done? Absolutely it can. LSU's lineup is talented enough. It's the best lineup in the country. Do the Tigers have enough pitching to get them back to Paul Skeens? That's the big question because you could use Skeens against Wake Forest in one of those games, but you got to get there. It's going to be Johnny Holstaff tonight against Tennessee. You know, you could probably pitch Cooper. Ackenhausen can go out there. I would expect Holman to start, or Jake could be like, hey, you know what? Cooper, you're going to go out there, and Eisenhausen, you're going to go out there, and Gavin Guidry, you're going to go out there, and you know, Coleman, you're going to go out there too. Because he told us last night in the postgame presser, he was asked about pitching, and he said, I got nine guys I can throw out there tomorrow. All hands on deck. But can LSU have enough pitching? We know they can hit, and I expect them to play well tonight and hit well against Tennessee. But do they have enough pitching to get to the weekend? That's going to be the big question mark for me. And we will see. And uh, we hope you have safe travels here. It's going to be a long day for you, I know, in the car. And uh, so hopefully you're going to be able to get back and get everything rolling. And we'll see you back here uh, tomorrow. See you back there in the Evco Development Studios tomorrow, brother. Great job today. Keep it up. Finish strong. Don't gotcha. slack off, Dawson. You had two great hours. Let's make the third hour exceptional. We will do our best. All right. Thanks, RP3. Bye, bud. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. You know the routine. Eat, drink, sleep, and sports. 
all day, every day. You're listening to The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back into a Tuesday edition of RP3 and Company. Dawson Angelo in for RP3 here on a day where he is traveling back from Omaha. Of course, we just got an update from him. Talked LSU falling to Wake Forest in what was an incredible college baseball game to watch. Plenty of intrigue there and just just played at a high level. Uh, just went the, went the way of the Demon Deacons last night. They got the clutch hit late in the game, but... The Jello shot record did fall. We also got his perspective on the how about RP3 being in the building when the record fell. And um, LSU certainly going to probably extend that one as long as their stay extends in Omaha, which they will have work to do in that regard. They'll have to beat Tennessee tonight at 6 o'clock. As we've been letting you know all day, that one's going to be on the game. We'll have that live for you here at 6 pregame at 5.30 with Chris Blair on the call. As the Tigers look to extend their season, we do know they're going to be facing Drew Beam. For the Volunteers, a guy who they had some good success against in the regular season. That was a weird baseball game. Tennessee ended up winning it 14-7. to And um, not sure how much you take from that one into going into a game like this in Omaha with obviously completely different stakes, a completely different situation. Um, but we'll see. And, and we will see who LSU decides to throw. There's a good chance they start Coleman, but I think there's a good chance they start Riley Cooper. I mean, I... I I think there's a lot of different ways that Jay Johnson could go with this. And the idea, though, is that it's Johnny Holstaff. And if if he starts Coleman and Coleman isn't sharp and gives up a couple runs early or, or looks shaky, there's a chance he pulls him in the second, third inning, you know, and goes right to Cooper or goes to Ackenhausen or, or goes to Gavin Gidry early. You know, I think he'd prefer to save him for a late-game situation. But if he has to, I don't think he's going to hesitate to bring anybody in earlier than you know you would in a traditional game because it's now do or die and this will interestingly enough this will be the first elimination game that LSU's played this season now they played an elimination game in Hoover but that wasn't the season on the line obviously and they knew that they knew it was their SEC tournament lives on the line but certainly not the season because they knew they were going to be an NCAA regional team no matter what so I think it's interesting now that you you come into the first situation now we haven't seen Jay Johnson coach a game and manage a pitching staff in a do-or-die game because, let's remember, they went undefeated in the regional, did not have to face an elimination game against Oregon State, and they went 2-0 in the Supers. They did not face an elimination against Kentucky. So I think that's worth kind of you know thinking about here as they head towards what will be their first elimination game tonight. It'll be the first of three if all goes the way that the Tigers are planning and they're able to battle their way back into a winner-take-all situation against Wake Forest to then potentially move into the College World Series Championship Series. Poll question of the day was, with that one loss now, how far will the LSU baseball team go in Omaha? 37% of you say they're going to lose today against Tennessee and that the run will come to an end. 42% of you say they lose one of the two to Wake Forest. So they beat Tennessee, they get back to Wake, 
but they can't beat them. If not once, they can't find a way to get it done that second time. That's the leading vote-getter so far. 10% say they're going to make it to the championship series, but fall just short against whoever wins the other side of the bracket. Could be Florida, could be TCU or Oral Roberts as well. Those teams will play an elimination game today at 1 o'clock, and the winner of that one will have to beat Florida twice um, in the same situation. Florida is in the same spot that Wake Forest is on the other side of the bracket. And 11% of you say they're still winning it all, still believe in the Tigers to win three games in three days and then win that best two out of three series. Let's go out to the game hotline. You're all live on RP3 and Company. How's it going? What's going on, Dawson? Not a whole lot. What's on your mind? How, how do, let, let's, say, let's say LSU wins today. Okay. Win, win the scheme pitch again, game one or game two of the Wake Forest. So when you look at the way the schedule works out and I think kind of what we've heard from Jay Johnson, I would expect that he wouldn't use him until the second game uh, because that one would be on Thursday. So in theory, though, I guess he could bring him back Wednesday in a limited outing. I just don't know if he's going to want to bring him. That would be, you know, uh, because he pitched on Saturday. That would only be three days rest, and he just hasn't done that this year, you know. So I – I would guess that he'd want to hold him back until Thursday, but it's also a spot where they're going to be in win-or-go-home mode, so does that change his sense of urgency on when he feels comfortable throwing Skeens? I think another factor in that is that Skeens is a high-profile draft prospect, and I think that that changes things, right? This isn't a grad transfer who's playing his last college baseball game ever and isn't really concerned. Paul Skeens has a lot of money on the line in the next month or so, and so, you know, I know he wants to go out there and throw for his team, but I wonder if the coaching staff feels they have to protect him from himself, you know? Yeah, when, when is the when is the championship uh, round start? It, it would start on Saturday. So if, if all if all went accordingly for LSU, they would play tonight, they would play tomorrow, and they would play Thursday. And if they won all three of those, they would have Friday off, and then Saturday would be game one, Sunday game two, and then Monday would be the, if necessary, game three of the championship series. Well, if he pitches Thursday, he, I mean, coming back on Tuesday would be kind of tough, huh? Well, it would be Monday would be the last game. So, yeah. Oh, I wow. Mean, and now, again, though, I you have to get there, right? So I think you have to you have to put everything on the table and you can't be holding guys back for potential championship series that might not happen. But, yeah, if he did come back and through on Thursday, um, maybe he's able to come back and give you a couple innings in a championship series, but I don't think he'd be able to give you a full start, no. Yeah, well, and Dawson, I'm sorry to tell you, but your boy in the next show is about to fall off the hammock. Oh, I know he is. And look, I'll have the sounder ready to play. It's okay. I'll be in full producing mode. I'll have uh, our station voice sounder that reminds him of the hammock season. I know we'll probably have to play it multiple times. It'll be okay. <laughs> Well, I mean, they, they, uh, the the Meg just uh, ripped them apart last night. I mean, I don't, I know you're going. Every team goes into a funk, but I mean, I don't know what it's going to take to get the Astros out there. Because was that four in a row? It's five, and um, yeah, no, it's not good. And Scherzer was dominant, and um, you know, Verlander's you know not going to be easy to beat tonight. So it's a situation where at some point the offense has to step up. And right now it just looks like not only is, you know, Abreu and those guys who have been lost all year. Yeah, we knew that, but now it doesn't feel like, you know, Bregman hasn't turned it around. Altuve starting to struggle again. I, I don't know where they're going to get offense from, but they need it. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks for the call. All right. We will take a timeout. When we come back, we're going to talk with Ali Casella, the bird rights, some Pelicans rumors swirling. 
We're going to see what we can make of it. That's next right here on RP3 and Company. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. NBA draft is just two days away, which it's uh, one of those that certainly snuck up on me about how quickly it was coming. And the rumors surrounding the New Orleans Pelicans have snuck up about as quickly as the draft did, and they are now swirling completely. At first, I didn't make much of it, but now it's starting to get to the point where I I am. And maybe this is me letting the rumors get the best of me, but I'm starting to wonder if there's some truth behind them. So to get some more uh, around that and more ideas on it, we have Ali Cassell from The Bird Rights with us. Ali, uh, good morning, and how's it going on NBA Draft Week? Good morning, Dawson. Yeah, I'm actually in the same boat as you. I dismissed a lot of this stuff early, and then now it's just getting so loud, especially over the weekend, that we have to take it seriously, right? The Pelicans may move on from, it sounds like, Zion Williamson. Well, let's start there then, um, because you know we we've talked about it a good bit. We felt like it would be an overreaction. Now, you know, we won't get into what's going on off the court with Zion because a lot of that is you know not necessary to talk about on the show. But there is a lot of noise, and that noise has gone from basketball issues to injury issues to now off the court stuff, and there's a lot surrounding it. But I think our general feeling was that it was not enough to you know make a drastic decision about, but maybe it sounds like the Pelicans might think differently about that. Right. It's just the culmination of four years of leaving wanting more is the easiest way to put it. Zion's just simply been unavailable. His career hasn't taken off to where it's led to consistent winning. He hasn't become the face of the franchise. And like I said, he's four years in, about to start a new contract, the max deal worth about $200 million over the next five years. And it's time for, I think, the Pelicans, they're thinking they want to get their money's worth, right? So it's it's difficult to think, but look, Zion may be out the door because there's real interest now in Scoot Henderson. That popped up about several weeks ago. The Pelicans really wanting to move up somehow in a draft to draft a player that was teammates with Dyson Daniels a year ago, played for the G League Ignite for several seasons. And by all counts, he looks like he's going to be one of the good young players of the league, right? If Victor Wembanyama wasn't in this draft, Scoot Henderson would have easily been the number one and everybody be, you know, talking about him all the time. So it's not like the Pelicans would be settling for some unknown draft pick. He's supposed to be a great player, multiple time all-star, you know, a guard. Pelicans have always sought to fill their guard holes that they've had over the years. And CJ's a little bit older in years. He's still very relevant, but he, you know, Scoot Henderson would be that transition to potentially having somebody here maybe for the next five, maybe ten years. And Zion would be that block used to trade him, like I said. So, you know, and I know you don't have an exact situation here, but what would the deal look like if you had to guess? Because I, I, I would assume the Pelicans aren't going to go straight up Zion for the number three pick or whatever it may be. So what would a package like that look like? Would they be able to get, you think, a legitimate role player in addition to that pick? Or would they be giving up Zion plus something just to move up? 
Yeah, what's funny is these packages have been all over the board. And from where I sit, I, I see a player that was in the MVP conversations last year. So I don't understand why you would be attaching anything to Zion to say at least get that draft pick, whether it's from Portland at number three or Charlotte at number two. So for me, I, I think that if you're involving Zion, then you're getting multiple players back. I mean, he, he's going to be, if he gets healthy, right, if he figures this part out and he can stand the court, by all counts, he's going to be one of the best players in the league. He's shown it in his limited minutes. He's only played 114 games, but when he's been out there, he's been one of the most effective, most efficient scorers that this league has seen in years. So I think that is worth more than just some potential, right, draft pick, even though he's rated very highly Scoot Henderson. That should involve more players. So with Charlotte, say, for instance, you would hope that it would involve maybe, say, a Terry Rozier, right, a good backup guard. Um, they've got several good young centers, including Mark Williams, who they drafted a year ago from Duke. So I would hope that'd be at least several of those players um, coming back along with Scoot Henderson. Also a report, and, you know, sometimes these can just be reports, but a report that Charlotte prefers Brandon Ingram. Would that be something you think the Pelicans even consider, or is the only reason they're entertaining these ideas because of how frustrated they've been with Zion Williamson? Yeah, that's the way I lean, Dawson. I think that Brandon's, even though he's not one that's played plenty of games, right? Played, what was it, about 40-some-odd games last season, trending in the wrong direction. He's still somebody I feel like that the – franchise has immersed themselves, right? Tied themselves to. He, he's made all the public appearances. He is considered the leader in, in the locker room, right? All of his teammates really adore Brandon, speak so highly of him. He feels like, honestly, the lifeblood uh, of this young team. So moving on from him makes zero sense to me. And the Pelicans have, first, I must say the Pelicans, I don't think have even offered, right? Zion Williamson, he's not up on the trade block, but Brandon Ingram, even less so. So I think that's just going to some of these teams, seeing what they would like in return, and them saying, well, we'd rather have Brandon Ingram. That's all this amounts to. So, no, I don't imagine Brandon Ingram would be traded by the Pelicans at all this season. I would put that pretty much at 0%. Let's say they do stay put and all the Zion rumors die down, whether they can't get the package they want back or maybe some of these rumors are, are more exaggerated than we think. If they stick at 14, what is the type of player, at least the position that you think they'd be looking at um, to supplement the guys that they already have on the roster. Yeah, that's a tough spot in the draft because by then a lot of the players I think they'd be interested in, like say tall or uh, shooters like a Grady Dick or maybe a center like Derek Lively, they should be off the board by then. And then sitting there is likely going to be a glut of guards, right? In the range of about, you know, six foot three to maybe six foot five, like say a case on Wallace out of Kentucky, Kobe Bufkin out of uh, Michigan, Nick Smith out of Arkansas. Basically, also a lot of projects, right? So for me, it's difficult to see them if, if they don't even make a trade. If they're having most of this roster come back, adding another young guy like that to this roster makes very little sense. So I'm half expecting maybe they would potentially either move down in draft or package it up in some kind of deal, right? Because it feels like they they could use a veteran or two. You, you see how Denver, right? How, how well they did by bringing in the Bruce Brown from the Nets and several other players. I feel like that's the route they need to take if they have any kind of aspirations for going on a deep playoff run. Well, we'll get back to the draft trade likelihood for our last question, but I did want to briefly ask you about Chris Paul now that he's been dealt to the Wizards, but it sounds like the Wizards might be willing to deal him again. Um, do you think it's any more or less likely that the Pelicans would have some interest there? 
I guess a lot of that would have to do with whether or not they get Scoot Henderson, but do you think that's a possibility? And if not, where do you see the likely landing spots for Chris Paul? Yeah, I know the Pelicans had a lot of interest in Chris Paul before C.J. McCollum walked in the door. This summer, they were really trying to bring in Kyle Lowry. Uh, They also knocked, uh, looked into potentially bringing in CP3, but that didn't work. Now that McCollum is here, I have a hard time seeing some kind of deal transpire to where Chris Paul would end up in New Orleans. That would require moving on from C.J. McCollum, who you just extended, and finding him a home. And, and like I said, I don't see the likelihood of that. So Chris Paul most likely is going to end up elsewhere, right? And there are suitors, right? Anywhere from the Lakers, who he's wanted to play with LeBron James for years, to um, some some other teams, like now the Knicks are being rumored. Washington's even considered on keeping him. But there's, you know, there's teams around the league that want his services. So it's as to where he might end up, Dawson, it's hard to say. Right. It's, it's basically going to come right. down to who's going to offer Washington the most. Right. So it's really a coin flip at this point. I just don't think Washington's going to release him. There's some talk that, hey, we traded for him. We're just going to let him walk. I don't think that's going to happen because from what I've heard, they're willing to at least keep him for half the year or something like that. Lead their young guys similar to what they did in OKC. So he's not going to become a free agent. Well, we'll uh, we'll end it with this. I know it's basically an impossible thing for you to try to predict, but what do you think at the end of the day the percentage likelihood is that the Pelicans trade up and get rid of Zion or that they end up keeping him and just building around him when the draft happens on Thursday? Yeah, last week I put it about 0.5%, everybody I talked to. But like I said, Steam's really picked up over the weekend. So I'm going to knock it up to maybe in around the 5% area. So 95% chance he'll be back. And I'm fully expecting that. He's just too talented because right now it just doesn't make sense to sell on him. Um, There's a whole slew of reasons. So he, Brandon Ingram, I fully expect for all of them to come back. Well, we will see. And uh, I kind of lean on your side. I hope they bring him back and try to make it work. But I guess uh, we'll have to see if David Griffin and others have the same ideas. Well, thanks for coming on, Ali. And uh, maybe we'll get you back on at some point in the next couple weeks to recap the draft and see what, uh, what transpires. Absolutely, Dawson. I think this is definitely going to be an exciting free agency period. Pelicans never have a dull one, it seems like. (laughs) Nope, they really don't. All right, thank you. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Alexa and the game make a great team. Do yourself a favor and enable the Alexa skill, the game Southwest Louisiana, so you can keep it locked in to the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, wherever you go. Welcome back to RP3 and Company. Dawson Eiserlow here, broadcasting live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette. Evco Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. Had a lot of fun hanging out here this morning in place of RP3, who we spoke to at the beginning of this hour. He's on his way back from Omaha, Nebraska, after covering the Tigers in their first couple games in the College World Series. We covered a lot today. Um, We did an in-depth dive on the LSU Wake Forest game. I thought it was one of the great baseball games of the year, although it didn't go the way of the Tigers. 
And they'll have a chance to bounce back, and they'll have to to stay alive this season. They'll have to play Tennessee at 6 o'clock, pregame at 5.30. You can hear that one right here on the game with Chris Chris Blair on the call. Uh, I did have a number to leave you all with as far as LSU's offense is concerned and the struggles they had against Wake Forest and that elite pitching staff. They do have to face Drew Beam again tonight, who is another elite arm. I don't know if he's on the level of Josh Hartle, um, but he's certainly got the talent, and we've seen that throughout the season with Tennessee's pitching staff. Um, But here's the nugget I found. LSU has been held to two runs one time this season. They have not been shut out. They have not been held to one run. They were held to two runs once. It was the finale against Auburn, that 12-2, 10-run rule game. Remember, that was kind of a, I guess, the down point in the season where they lost 2-3 from Auburn, including getting blown out there in the finale. Um, Then after that, of course, they lost 2-3 to Mississippi State with the bullpen meltdown as well. So maybe the bottom point came in the week after that. But when they were held to two runs... Their next couple games, they scored 14 against Northwestern State in a midweek game and then scored 12 against Mississippi State in the first of a three-game series. So, if you want some optimism there, the only time this year that that LSU offense was really held in check by Auburn when they only scored two runs, they bounced back in a big way. Now, it was a midweek game against Northwestern State, so that's certainly a fair point there, but the point remains. The other time that they were held kind of in that area, they were held to three runs against Arkansas. Now, remember, that was that weird Friday night game that went 10 innings, and they ended up giving up a ton of runs in extras. They lost 9-3. to Well, they came back in the next two of that series, winning a 12-2 10-run rule game on Saturday and a 14-5 blowout uh, in the second of the doubleheader there when they end up playing two. So they scored 26 runs the next day. So certainly some, uh, maybe some, you know, a good omen there for LSU moving forward into their game against Tennessee. Final results of the poll question. We asked, with one loss now in Omaha, how far can LSU baseball go? 35% of you say they're going to lose today and the season will end against the Tennessee Volunteers. 42% say they get back to Wake, but they lose one of the two because, again, they'd have to beat the Demon Deacons twice. 10% say they'll make it out of this side of the bracket. They'll beat Wake twice, but they'll lose in the championship series. And 13% of you say they still are going to win it all. They're going to find a way to win three games in three days and then win that best two out of three series against whoever comes out of the other side of the bracket. The teams alive are still Florida, Oral Roberts, and TCU, with Florida being in the driver's seat at 2-0. and I uh, want to thank our guests for today's show. Of course, we started off with Brett Shanty of the Locked On Astros podcast. There were plenty of... Uh, negative things to talk about with the way the Houston Astros are playing. And as Kevin Foote just walked in the building, I'm sure we're going to hear more about how poorly the Astros looked against the Mets when he begins his show. Uh, after that, we had RP3 on, of course, from Omaha, just getting on the road this morning. So we spoke to him about that LSU game and, and how you know close it was, the atmosphere around it, also the jello shot record falling. How about our guy RP3 being in attendance when that took place? Pure electricity, I can imagine. And then we ended up with Ali Cassell because these Pelican drummers, again, they're just wearing on me. And I got to the point where I didn't know what to believe anymore. So I had to get some clarification from a guy who knows what he's talking about. And Ali, you know, I think uh, made me feel better. He did say that he as well has started to kind of wonder how true any of these rumors are and kind of if there's anything to them. And maybe the Pelicans do move on from Zion. But The last question I asked him gave me some more hope. He said he's only going to put it at a 5% chance that they move on from Zion. He thinks there was a 0.5% chance the last time we asked him. He said now he'll go up to a 5% chance, but he still says 95% chance that they're going to go ahead and keep him 
They'll either package a deal to make it, you know, some sort of other trade to move up in the draft, maybe move back in the draft, maybe trade that pick away for a player. But he does think that more than likely the Pelicans aren't going to blow this thing up. They're going to try and find a way to work through the issues, uh, whether it be off the court, the injury stuff, and they're going to try and figure things out. And for me, hope you know personally, I'm not ready to move on either. So I kind of agree with him on that. I think it's still you know a situation where you have to give this a full shot this season. And you know, look, if at the end of the year Zion still hasn't made a commitment to being the best he can be, and he still has injury issues and health issues as far as you know putting himself in the best shape that he needs to be in to be an elite player, then yeah, you'll have to reevaluate things, and maybe you'll trade him at that point. But I do think with the investment you've made and kind of the city rallying around it at this point and some of the promise that you showed last year, he was in the MVP conversation for a long time there, I think you have to stay put and we'll see if that's what happens. The draft is on Thursday, so only two days away. That one certainly snuck up on me. And if the Pelicans are going to make a move, we're going to find out pretty soon whether or not they make it. So want to thank uh, our guests again. Once, As we mentioned, thank you for a couple of calls that we got in throughout the show, everybody who participated in the poll on Twitter and Facebook. RP3 will be back tomorrow. We'll have a normal edition of the show. But until then, we'll have Kevin Foot and Footnotes coming up next right here on The Game. Television's greatest hits.